This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Pleased to see you before the committee again. It's nice to see the Secretary engage on a regular basis, and we appreciate that. And even though we may not always agree on everything, I appreciate your proactively making yourself available to discuss the budget. It sends an important signal about the value of transparency in our two branches of government working together on behalf of the American people. I'm also pleased to note that after four years in which this committee, on a bipartisan basis, greeted the foreign affairs budget proposals with various tones of incredulity, today we have a serious budget proposal that, if enacted, would represent the largest increase to the regular international affairs budget in more than a decade. That's not to say that we will see eye to eye on all the specific components, to be sure, but we're looking forward to a robust and substantive discussion. After a year in, during which the international community has been shaken to its core by the COVID pandemic, it should be clear to everyone that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure in both public health and in international affairs, and especially where the two intersect. I was pleased to see the administration's recent announcement that we will be leading on the world stage by providing vaccines to countries desperately in need. Although I believe we should prioritize countries who embrace fundamental democratic freedoms and rights. For the international community to work for Americans, for fundamental universal values of human rights, democracy, and equitable prosperity, the United States must invest in and lead international institutions and stand up for international law. We must invest in smart economic development and free and fair trade. We must invest in meeting the challenges of climate change. And we must invest in our diplomacy and development professionals. For when we do not, we find that others with different interests and values have the space to act in ways that threaten to upend the global order and undermine our interests. The administration's proposal to significantly increase the budget for state and USAID and other international programs reflects the investments we need to be successful in furthering our nation's interests and values. And I want to commend you for seeking to rebalance the budget away from overseas contingency operations and to restore base funding. But today's hearing isn't just about numbers. It's about how we invest those numbers. So let me take a few minutes to highlight a few issues and areas of concern. Broadly, in the Middle East, we need to rebalance a heavily military and arms sales-oriented policy to one that focuses more on strategic, diplomatic, and development investments. And while not directly related to the budget, we certainly want to hear about the administration's efforts to reach a comprehensive diplomatic agreement with Iran that goes far beyond the JCPOA. What is the definition of stronger? In Europe, many of us were disappointed by the administration's decision to waive sanctions on Nord Stream 2. As I know that when you leave us today, you're heading to Europe. I look forward to hearing your perspective about how the U.S. can work to assure Ukraine of our commitment to its security. And critically, in advance of President Biden's meeting with Putin, I hope the administration sends a very strong message to Moscow. Putin only understands strength. On Afghanistan, the security situation is increasingly dire, and we have to start thinking about our contingency planning. The committee needs to hear, uh, beyond vague promises of commitment to the Afghan people, what we are going to do. 
In Africa, the administration faces a raft of diplomatic challenges. China and Russia continue to act in ways inimical to our interests and those of the majority of the people in Africa. My apologies. Tensions between My Ethiopia, Egypt, and Sudan over the Grand Ethiopian Renaissance Dam could destabilize the entire Horn of Africa. Al-Shabaab poses a continuing threat, while in Mozambique, another robust terrorist threat has emerged. Coups in Mali and Chad have undermined international counterterrorism and development efforts. And Nigeria requires a fundamental rethink of the framework of our overall engagement. In Latin America and the Caribbean, the COVID-19 pandemic is exacerbating social and political pressures with serious implications for regional stability. We are also seeing a fraying of democratic consensus with deeply flawed elections and far too common attacks on the separation of powers with the potential results of democratic decay all too apparent in the humanitarian crisis in Venezuela or the irregular migration streaming from Central America. I also look forward to hearing what we are doing to get to the bottom of apparent attacks on U.S. personnel and family members that have left many with ongoing and debilitating injuries and the steps that state is taking to ensure our personnel are protected. Beyond the immediate health impacts of the COVID pandemic, I also look forward to hearing from you how the United States will address secondary impacts of the pandemic, given that 36 countries and 130 million people could now experience famine this year. I'm also eager to understand how the administration plans to address the needs of the 235 million people worldwide that require humanitarian assistance and protection, a near 40% increase over 2020. Across the globe, authoritarian regimes and non-state actors have impeded humanitarian access to devastating effect, and how the administration intends to address the horrific trend of sexual and gender-based violence in Tigray, Ethiopia, Burma, Xinjiang, and elsewhere, where governments use sexual violence as a weapon of war against religious and ethnic minorities. Finally, as the Senate continues with consideration of its China package, including the Strategic Competition Act this committee voted out on a bipartisan basis, I'm interested in your views on how to resource and posture ourselves in the Indo-Pacific and successfully compete with China across all dimensions of power. It's a long list of concerns, Mr. Secretary. You well know that. It's hardly comprehensive even, but that's the world that we have, the challenges that we face as a nation. So we look forward to hearing your thoughts and ideas for how we meet this sig signal uh, moment in our country and our planet's history and the role you envision for the Department of State in helping our nation to do so. With that, the distinguished ranking member, Senator Risch. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, I, I join you in uh, the express, expression of frustration for the tremendous number of issues we have and the minimal time we really have to uh, deal with them here. But uh, it is what it is, and uh, we're just going to have to uh, triage uh, and uh, deal with what's uh, most important. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I understand that you're off to the G7 summit uh, immediately after this meeting. And so I'd like to start on a positive note. Uh, there's some bright spots in the President's International Affairs budget request. I was pleased with the emphasis on advancing U.S. global health security. Chairman Menendez and I continue to work on legislation to improve pandemic preparedness and response. It is a high priority for myself, and I think I speak for the chairman in saying it's a high priority for him also. It's something that uh, this committee really needs to do uh, in light of uh, the things that have happened over the last year and a half. Uh, I look forward to seeing how we can align this effort uh, with the uh, Department of State, which uh, obviously pay, plays and will play a large role as we go forward. Uh, 
But overall, the request is consistent with a troubling pattern where Congress is asked to provide more and more, and the administration uh, does not uh, respond in kind, and uh, we'd like to see that improve. We see this uh, uh, plainly in the partisan American Rescue Plan, which provided $10 billion to help combat the COVID-19 pandemic overseas three months ago. And I still don't feel that I have an understanding of how this plan uh, will put those resources to good use on the ground. The President also pledged to share 80 million surplus doses of U.S.-approved COVID-19 vaccines over a month ago, and just last week provided a snapshot of where they will go. But I just I don't feel I have a comfortable understanding of, uh, of the information that uh, should be provided with this. Uh, also, uh, I, I'd really like to see how the administration will uh, ensure that U.S. financial contributions to COVAX, which are important, are not used to purchase uh, the, and distribute the substandard Chinese vaccines. We've all seen how those have worked out in the field. The President has now asked for a 12% increase in foreign assistance spending for fiscal year 2022. Here again, Congress is asked to provide more money. We need more transparency and more accountability, of course. The challenges we face overseas are immense, but throwing good money at bad problems hasn't solved much in the past and will not solve anything today. Increasing foreign aid absent a clear strategy that emphasizes efficiency, effectiveness, and ultimately self-reliance will not advance U.S. strategic interests. Nor will a budget uh, that proposes to throw hard-earned U.S. taxpayer dollars, or worse, our kids' and our grandkids' money at a wholly unaccountable international institutions, including the Green Climate Fund or U.N. agencies in dire need of reform, like the U.N. Human Rights Council and, of course, the World Health Organization, which itself admits that their re, uh, reform is needed. I believe that advancing an effective strategy to compete with the People's Republic of China must be the United States' top policy priority. I expect what we hear today about how this budget addresses this strategic imperative, and we need to fortify U.S. engagement in the Indo-Pacific region. The Strategic uh, Competition Act, which recently passed out of this committee on a 21-to-1 vote, uh, provides a roadmap. Uh, I had hoped, and I think uh, the chairman had hoped, that we would get a standalone vote on this on the floor when a bill comes out that uh, is as important as that is, deals with the complexity that uh, it did, and comes out in a 21-to-1 vote. It really should get consideration. Instead, of course, it's been uh, placed in the, uh, the other bill, uh, which uh, obviously uh, it's, uh, is uncertain where that will go. The bill that we had authorizes funds to provide strategic direction for countering Chinese uh, influence. It mandates increases of, for diplomatic engagement, foreign assistance, and security assistance for Indo-Pacific. Finally, it will help countries better organize infrastructure deals without falling into a Chinese debt trap or compromising their sovereignty. With, uh, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, whatever happens with the large bill, if it does not pass, that we get a, a vote on, uh, on our bill, this committee's bill. With regard to the Iran deal, I'm deeply troubled by the direction Iran negotiations are headed. This is no surprise to you, uh, Mr. Secretary, as we have talked about it over and over again. While your negotiators are in touch with the committee, uh, they are, like their predecessors on the original JCPOA, totally unresponsive to uh, congressional objections. These are not consultations, but simply notifications. Not one of the suggestions I've made uh, has been accepted, either in the first JCPOA negotiations or in the ones that are ongoing now. Uh, it's clear uh, that uh, it's intended uh, that uh, we, the United States, rejoin the failed nuclear deal unchanged uh, after the Iranian elections. Your promises to lengthen and strengthen will come later, but the idea of follow-on agreements is unrealistic 
and I would uh, argue delusional. Uh, I, I can't understand why anyone would think that if the Iranians won't agree to up uh, to uh, the things we want them to agree to up front, why in the world would they agree to it after the fact when they get everything that they've uh, asked for in the negotiations? The Iranians uh, will uh, never agree to return to discussions without the threat of continued sanctions. Additionally, the administration's plan to pursue sanctions relief not consistent with the original nuclear deal are deeply concerning, especially as you consider rolling back terrorism and other sanctions not covered in the original deal. Moving to Israel, I applaud the administration for refusing to bow to progressive demands that we'd abandon our closest friend and ally as they face down a terrorist organization. This is a matter of Iran-backed uh, terrorism against Israel, uh, a uh, sovereign nation, and, a, and uh, that is uh, being done by a designated terrorist organization, Hamas, using its own people as human shields. I'm disappointed that some of my colleagues in Congress would call this uh, enduring partnership into question. At the same time, I'm concerned that the administration is rushing to normalize relations with the Palestinian Authority without gaining elimination of the pay-for-slay program and other Palestinian actions that glorify and actually uh, reward violence and terrorism. On Afghanistan, I have long called uh, for a responsible end to the war, but by doing so in a manner that keeps Americans safe. I believe that what happens, uh, what appears to be a Russian political decision to withdraw without consideration of our counterterrorism priorities will allow Afghanistan to serve as a future platform for terrorist attacks against the United States and our partners. I have concerns that the despicable attack on the girls' school in Kabul is a sign of more to come. I'm also concerned by the President's submission to Putin and abandonment of our European allies by waiving sanctions on Nord Stream 2 AG. You testified in January that uh, Nord Stream 2 is a bad deal, yet this administration is allowing it to be completed. I understand you have some thoughts on that that you're going to tell us about today. This is a decision that uh, is really uh, an, an affront to us. I can't understand. I totally do not understand how the President, within very short time after being inaugurated, within hours, put a pen to a piece of paper, shut down the Keystone Pipeline, put Canadians and Americans out of work, and yet uh, we don't have that same enthusiasm to shut down the Nord Stream Pipeline. As the President heads to Europe, I hope uh, to see the emergence of a real strategy for dealing with Russia, not just more dialogue. Give Putin an inch and he will take a mile, and I agree with the Chairman wholeheartedly that all he understands is uh, power. Lastly, in regards to the UN this fall, the United States will renegotiate the scales of assessment for UN peacekeeping. Currently, the UN has assessed the United States at a rate of 27.9%. As you know, this is not congruent with U.S. law. No country should pay more than 25%, and in 1994, Congress enacted a bill that imposed a 25% cap. I, I would hope the administration would follow this law. It remains in effect today, and it must be used as the negotiating position. I look forward to hearing your testimony on these and other items that are of concern to you. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, Senator Risch. Uh, your full statement will be included in the record, Mr. Secretary, and the floor is yours. Thank you very much. Uh, Chairman Menendez, uh, Ranking Member Risch, uh, all the members of the committee uh, here today very much appreciate uh, this opportunity uh, to talk about the uh, proposed budget and how it will help us achieve uh, our national security priorities and deliver results for the American people, which is <laughs> our common responsibility and common cause. Uh, we see this as a critical moment for the United States and for our global leadership. Uh, we face major tests, including stopping COVID-19, rising the challenge of climate change, uh, supporting a global economic recovery that delivers uh, for American workers and their families. 
we need to revitalize our alliances and partnerships, outcompete China, and defend the international rules-based order against those who seek to undermine it, uh, renew democratic values at home and abroad, and push back against malign activity by our adversaries. In a more competitive world, uh, other countries are making historic investments in their foreign policy toolkit. Uh, we need to do the same thing. Uh, and that's why in this budget, we've requested $58.5 billion for the State Department and USAID for fiscal year 2022. Uh, and just to touch on some of the specifics, uh, the budget will strengthen global health. Uh, the United States has been a leader uh, in this field for decades uh, in Africa uh, and uh, around the world. We're asking for $10 billion for global health programs, including nearly $1 billion for global health security to help us prevent, prepare for, respond to uh, future global health crises so we can stop outbreaks before they turn into pandemics that put our safety uh, and prosperity uh, in danger. The budget would accelerate the global response to climate uh, change and the climate crisis by providing $2.5 billion for international climate programs, including $1.25 billion to the Green Climate Fund to help developing countries implement climate adaptation and emissions mitigation programs, which is directly in our interest. Uh, we would double down in this budget on the fight for democracy, uh, which, as we all know, is under threat uh, in too many places. People talk about a democratic recession uh, around the world. Uh, our budget request includes $2.8 billion uh, in foreign assistance to advance human rights, uh, to fight corruption, to stem the tide of democratic backsliding, to strengthen and defend democracies. Uh, for example, through technical training for elections and support for independent media and civil society. Uh, we also request $300 million for the National Endowment for Democracy. Uh, the budget would support a comprehensive strategy to address the root causes of irregular migration from <laughs> Central America. It would invest $861 million in the region as a first step toward a four-year commitment of $4 billion to help prevent violence, reduce poverty, uh, curtail endemic corruption, and expand jobs uh, and educational opportunities. Uh, the budget would reestablish our humanitarian leadership with a request of $10 billion in assistance to support refugees, victims of conflict, other displaced people, uh, and to rebuild the refugee admissions program. Uh, the budget would support our partners in the Middle East by fully funding our commitment to key countries, including Israel and Jordan, and by restoring humanitarian assistance to the Palestinian people. Uh, it includes a budget request for $3.6 billion uh, to pay our assessed contributions in full to international organizations, initiatives, and peacekeeping efforts, uh, including to restore our annual contributions to the World Health Organization. Uh, as China and other uh, countries work hard to bend international organizations to their worldview, we need to do uh, our best to ensure that these organizations instead remain grounded in the values, the principles, the rules of the road uh, that have made our shared progress possible uh, for so many decades. And finally, uh, Mr. Chairman, Ranking Member, to deliver uh, in all of these areas, uh, the budget will reinvest in our most vital uh, asset, and that's our people. Um, it will provide new resources to recruit, uh, train, and retain a first-rate, diverse global workforce with nearly 500 additional foreign and civil service positions, the largest increase for the State Department uh, staffing in a, a decade. And critically, it would modernize our technology and cybersecurity, protect our embassies and consulates, include a direct appropriation of $320 million for consular services worldwide so we can continue to provide those vital services to Americans and those who seek to travel, study, or do business uh, with the United States. Uh, our national security depends not only on the strength of our armed forces, 
but on our ability to conduct effective diplomacy and development. That's how we solve global challenges. Uh, that's how we forge cooperation, uh, advance our interests and values, protect our people, and prevent crises overseas from becoming emergencies here at home. And that's why diplomacy and development are smart investments uh, for American taxpayers. Uh, a final word, uh, Mr. Chairman. Uh, a top priority for me as Secretary is to restore the traditional role of Congress as a partner in our foreign policy making. Uh, that's the spirit that uh, I bring to today's uh, conversation, and I'm grateful for this opportunity and the opportunity to uh, have a dialogue and answer your questions. Thank you. Well, thank you, Mr. Secretary. We, we look forward to engaging in that. Uh, we'll do a start around the questions. Uh, and let me first start on the budget. Uh, I have been a robust defender of the State Department's budget in years in which we received budgets that clearly could not meet the mission uh, of the State Department or the interests of the United States. So I'm glad to see, as I said in my remarks, a budget that is um, real uh, and that would be the single uh, most significant increase in a decade. And I support, in general, I support the, uh, the effort. I may have some suggestions to make as we move forward on the refinement of elements of it, but I, I do want you to know I support it. Uh, having said that, I'd like to explore with you some regional issues uh, for which this budget is ultimately going to be put to work. Uh, is it fair to say that uh, when uh, we had the JCPOA, uh, Iran, uh, continued to pursue ballistic missiles. Iran continued to destabilize the region. Iran continued to be the single most significant uh, sponsor of terrorism uh, in the world. Uh, I think it is fair to say that, Mr. Chairman, although I think, unfortunately, its activities uh, in those areas have only gotten worse. I agree. It's been out of the area. It's gotten worse. Uh, I agree with you on that. Uh, is it fair to say that when we had the JCPOA uh, that uh, Iran did not seek to change its ways in these areas and others, uh, or seek to get greater relief from sanctions in order to change their ways on these various issues? Uh, during the time the JCPOA was enforced to the extent we were participating in it, I think that's a, that's a fair assessment, yeah. yes. And so here's the, the concern that I and others have. Uh, the Iranians have, have, have gotten on to the fact that when they want relief, they accelerate their programs. Now, I wasn't a supporter of the JCPOA. I think everybody knows that. I also wasn't a supporter of President Trump arbitrarily and capriciously leaving the agreement without allies at the end of the day or a strategy uh, to achieve a goal. And in fact, Iran has advanced its nuclear program since President Trump left the agreement. It has greater capacity. It has enriched more material. And of course, none of the, its other malign activities have, have stopped. They've gotten worse. So the question is, uh, if all we return to is a compliance for compliance uh, basis, which is my takeaways from the conversations I've had with your negotiators, and if we have a history that Iran never sought to get more relief in return for dealing with its other malign activities, what's going to make us believe that, in fact, a return to compliance for compliance is going to produce anything stronger hmm. than what we had? Uh, Two things, Mr. Chairman. First, compliance uh, for compliance, if we get there, and that remains a big if, uh, which we can come back to, uh, it has to be a first step, not a last step. Uh, I agree with that. Uh, we have an immediate challenge, which is that, uh, to your point, Iran's nuclear program is galloping forward. Uh, it is enriching uh, at, a, at uh, higher levels, 20%, uh, even 60%. 
uh, in small cases. It's using more advanced centrifuges. The breakout time that the agreement established, uh, an agreement that on its terms was working, is verified by our intelligence folks as well as the international uh, experts, uh, pushed the breakout time to a year. We're now down, based on published reports, to a few months. If this continues, if they continue to enrich at the uh, levels and in the ways that they're doing, it will get down eventually to uh, a few weeks. So that is a, a concrete problem. We have an interest in putting that nuclear problem back in the box because an Iran with a nuclear weapon or with the ability to produce fissile material on very short notice to get one is an Iran that's going to be an even worse actor uh, in terms of its impunity in all of these other areas. Having said that, I agree uh, with you that, uh, again, this would need to be a first step, uh, not a last step, and, and we would seek to build on it. What does stronger mean? Your administration, your, you yourself in testimony before the committee has said, we seek a longer, that I get, mm -hmm. and stronger, but what does stronger mean? So I think we have to look at uh, specific aspects, whether there are uh, areas where we can uh, get uh, even uh, stronger um, commitments uh, from, uh, from Iran. But of course, if we, uh, if we do that, we can expect that Iran would ask for things uh, in return. So we'd have to gauge whether whatever improvements might be made in terms of stronger would be worth whatever uh, needed uh, Iran would seek. The longer piece, as you know uh, very well, uh, is important because a number of the provisions in the agreement uh, sunset, although I would point out that the most critical provisions, that is the ability to enrich beyond 3.67% the ability to have uh, a stockpile of more than 300 kilograms of enriched uranium, these go uh, till 2030. So there's still some time built in uh, if we come back to the plans. But I, I think we need to look at those. Uh, I, hope, I hope, Mr. Secretary, that as we are assuaging our European uh, uh, colleagues and uh, you know, cohorts in this effort, that they are truly committed to the stronger part. Because mm -hmm. my experience with them is they want to solve the immediate problem but getting them to follow on on the longer-term problems is a much more difficult proposition. Mm -hmm. So let me, let me turn to, to Russia. I'm sure many other members will ask you this, but I want to give you an opportunity. I, uh, uh, I think uh, many of us on a bipartisan basis were deeply concerned about the administration's decision to waive sanctions on Nord Stream 2 AG and its CEO last week. Uh, as the president heads to his uh, meeting uh, with Putin, uh, I'll reiterate, from my perspective, we know what Putin is. As the president himself has said, he's a murderer. He's KGB. Uh, and uh, he only understands strength. I would have thought that one of the most significant ways to show strength is to uh, ensure that the pipeline is killed. Now, you all, from your analysis, may come to a different conclusion. And I certainly understand the importance of Germany. But if you want to give somebody a very strong blow to send a message, Nord Stream would have been it. So why don't you share with us oh, the thinking that went behind uh, on the waiver? Sure, no, and I appreciate that very much. Uh, first, as you know, uh, well, construction on the pipeline began in 2018. By the time we took office, it was over 90% complete, the physical construction of the pipeline. Um, on May 19th, uh, under, uh, under the PISA legislation, we sanctioned 13 ships uh, and uh, four companies, the most, uh, the largest number of entities uh, sanctioned under that legislation since it was put into effect. But we also, to your point, issued uh, a national interest waiver under the law uh, with regard to the, the parent company, Nord Stream 2 AG, uh, and its CEO. That waiver can be rescinded uh, at any time. Um, why did we do that? Uh, the worst possible outcome, from our perspective, 
uh, would be physical construction of the pipeline completed, relationship with Germany uh, poisoned, no incentive for Germany to come to the table uh, to um, make good on working to mitigate uh, the serious um, negative consequences of oil flow, uh, gas flowing through this, uh, through this pipeline. The Germans have now uh, come to the table. We are actively engaged with them. And there are a few things that absolutely would need to happen uh, going forward, as, as, as you know, and as we've had an opportunity to discuss. Uh, Ukraine needs to be made whole if this pipeline is going to go into operation. Uh, it will potentially lose transit fees as a result of the pipeline going around Ukraine. Uh, that needs to be dealt with. Uh, we must make sure that Russia cannot use gas or energy uh, as a coercive tool uh, in its relations with Ukraine or any other state in Europe. Uh, there are ways uh, of doing that, making sure that there is uh, backup so that if uh, uh, gas is denied, uh, we can provide it. Other ways of uh, securing and strengthening Ukraine, various snapback mechanisms so that if Russia acts in an inappropriate way, uh, there is some automaticity in the actions that are taken by us and by Germany. So we're engaged with them on that. At the same time, uh, as you know, even when the pipeline is physically complete, for it to go into operation, uh, it still requires uh, insurance, it still requires uh, various permits, and we're looking very carefully at all of that. So what we need to do now is, uh, and it's exactly what we're doing, uh, engage with the Germans uh, to see if we can uh, deal with the negative consequences of this pipeline uh, going into operation. And there's a distinction between the physical completion of the pipeline, which in our judgment, we simply could not stop. It was too late to stop the joining of, the, of those pipes. Its operation is another matter. What we can do for Ukraine uh, and others uh, is also another matter. Parenthetically, last point, the President spoke to President Zelensky today, uh, invited him to the United States. Uh, we're in very uh, active engagement uh, with Ukraine as we go forward on this. Well, we're happy to see you did that, and we look forward to seeing what you do as it relates to the potential operational capacity if you don't get what you want. And I, last point, I'd, I'd commend your attention to a Washington Post op-ed that we did on Iran and a mm. different pathway forward, a positive different pathway forward. Senator Rush. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And I'd like to associate myself with your questions regarding Iran uh, deal. I, I, look, uh, Mr. Secretary, I, I don't think there's anybody here that would suggest that uh, the dealings you're going to have with Iran aren't tough. They are tough. Uh, it's not easy. What is easy is to say no and push your chair away from the table if you can't get them to where you need to be. And uh, the, the JCPOA didn't come anywhere close on that. One of the biggest problems I had uh, was the tremendous amount of cash that was uh, given to the Iranians. There's no doubt in my mind that uh, it, uh, part of that cash wound up paying for the munitions that were dropped on Israel in, uh, in recent days. There's no doubt in my mind that part of that cash was paid to arm the Houthis uh, in order to uh, uh, continue their attacks against uh, Saudi Arabia. There's no doubt in my mind that part of that cash was used to uh, construct uh, and uh, deliver missiles uh, into Lebanon that uh, we all know were there and, uh, and aimed at Israel. Um, th this business of just handing cash over to these people is a bad, bad deal. And I suggested last time that uh, if indeed uh, uh, cash is uh, allowed to flow into Iran, that it be put in some kind of a lockbox or have some kind of oversight over it so that it can't be used for the nefarious purposes that, uh, that Iran wants to use it for. And uh, I suggested that last time, and uh, I was told, oh, no, they won't agree to that. Well, if they won't agree to that, uh, you know where that money's going to go. 
And I don't know how somebody could ask us to vote for it when we know that that money is going to be uh, money that uh, causes uh, blood to flow. So I, I would hope you'd take a, a look at that. There's, as you know, there's billions in South Korea and other countries that, uh, uh, that the Iranians want freed up and that uh, I've heard discussion would be freed up if indeed another uh, JCPOI, JCPOA deal was reached. And I, I'm just, I'm very concerned about uh, doing this again. I mean, we've, we've seen exactly what happened and that's uh, what's gonna happen again. And uh, it's, it's troubling, it's really, really troubling when you give money to these kind, uh, to these kind of people. So I don't know, I, I, I have irreconcilable differences with the administration on simply going back into the, uh, into the JCPOA that we were in before. It seems to me that we've gotten ourselves in a position, whether you agree or disagree with what the prior administration did, it's gotten us to a position where they are deeply weakened compared to when the administration took office. So I would hope you'd take advantage of it and just say no. Uh, there's, and and that's, that's just the beginning. I mean, uh, the, the, their uh, testing and, and development of uh, uh, missiles in absolute violation of uh, resolutions uh, of the UN should not be tolerated. Uh, why sit at a table with people that are going to look you in the eye and say, look, we don't care what you say. We don't care what the UN says. We don't care what the rest of the world says. We are going to develop missiles. And you can go pound sand. And then we hand them billions of dollars. It doesn't make sense. Well, in any event, uh, I wish you well in it. Uh, I, I, I wish you'd say no I, and keep the uh, sanctions in place. We will be willing partners, at least Senate, this senator will, as far as ratcheting up more uh, uh, of those uh, sanctions against, uh, against that country. Let me ask a specific question. On, on the money that I looked at it in this budget that is going to other countries for addressing uh, global warming, how, I, I'm really lost as to what that's gonna go for. It's really vague in there. Can you help me out where, what it's gonna be used for? Sure, uh, thank you. Uh, here's the challenge for, uh, for, for us with uh, with dealing with global warming and dealing with climate change. Uh, we are taking significant steps uh, to uh, curb our emissions, uh, but even if we do everything right, at least in the way uh, that we see it, uh, we're 15% of global emissions, so we do everything right, we still got 85% of the problem left. Uh, and other countries have to come along. And of course, we do not wanna be the ones doing uh, all, of the, all of the work. We have to get others uh, to do what they need to do as well to deal well, with Well, we can't be, can we? I mean, we're, if, if we're only 15%, we can't right. finance the other uh, 85%. So it's not, it's not financing the other 85%, but there are some countries that need to take uh, meaningful actions to, to curb emissions that, uh, that will need assistance in, in developing uh, and adapting technologies that uh, can help them curb those emissions. So the Green Climate Fund, for example, is a way of helping countries uh, without the means to do it uh, to adapt technologies that will uh, curb emissions and also build resilience uh, against some of the uh, uh, challenges posed so by climate is, change right now. Is there now. a plan that we can look at in that regard and identify the countries that are going to get this money and how much they're going to get? I, is there, I, is I there believe a, there is, and I'm happy to share please uh, do that, that with you. Go, go ahead. I, I, uh, no, I was going to say, we're happy to come back to you with, uh, uh, with the details on that. All right. Thank you. Um, I, and I didn't allow you to respond on the Iranian situation. Do you? you yeah, yes, and look, and we've had the opportunity to talk about this uh, we have. a number of times. Appreciate you. Um, first, um, 
all of the egregious actions which we share uh, condemnation of with, uh, with you uh, that Iran is engaged in are happening under maximum pressure. Uh, not more. It's gotten worse, not better. So that effort did not solve the problem, a problem we all, uh, we all acknowledge. Um, whether we like it or not, and we don't like it, uh, uh, Iran has been engaged in these activities, including support for Hamas, including support for other terror groups, including support for proxies, engaging in destabilizing activities across the board. It was doing that before the JCPOA. It continued to do that during the JCPOA. And it's gotten worse since we got out of the JCPOA. Our challenge now, I think, uh, is, is, is threefold. One is um, we have uh, the problem that it, its nuclear program, uh, now that it is not abiding by the constraints of the JCPOA, is literally galloping forward. And we talked about that a few minutes ago. But the uh, magnitude of their enrichment, uh, enriching more uh, at uh, higher levels, uh, is putting it in a position where the breakout time is inexorably getting down from a year to months to eventually weeks. Uh, and that is a problem uh, for us. Also, if this continues, um, what it is learning, what it is um, uh, able to uh, master in the time that it's doing this is going to be very hard <laughs> to, uh, to pull back. So we have that, that incentive. That's one piece. Uh, the second piece is, and I agree with, with both you and, uh, and the chairman, uh, that is, a in my judgment, a necessary step. Put this back in the box, but an insufficient one. Uh, and we have, to build, we have to build on it. But not only in terms of the agreement itself in terms of these other actions that Iran is taking that we all profoundly uh, object to. We will retain all of the tools uh, to do that, uh, to, uh, to push back on them for these actions. I think we will have greater cooperation and coordination from partners who over the last few years have been focused almost entirely on preserving the nuclear agreement, not actually working with us to help curb some of these other, uh, other actions. Uh, so we have to be able to do all of that. And what I can tell you is we are uh, determined to do that. But we need to put this nuclear problem back in the box that it was in uh, and, uh, and move on from there. Well, my time's up. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. But let me just conclude by saying um, it, we, we both know, and the world knows, that there's another entity that's going to do something about this. Uh, whatever the JCPOA says or doesn't say, whatever everybody else agrees to, there's another entity that has taken a solemn oath that they will never have, Iran will never have a nuclear weapon. And I guess the biggest question would be, what happens when you get the call? Thank you. Senator Cardin. <clears throat> Secretary Blinken, welcome. To you. You've been very busy. It's a challenging world. Uh, I certainly agree with Senator Menendez, our chairman, that we welcome the budget that has been submitted for um, our foreign policy issues. It, certainly reflects the commitment that we have a value-based foreign policy. I was particularly pleased by your statements here about your commitment to good governance. The press statement for your FY22 budget says it includes a significant increase in resources to advance human rights and democratic values, fight corruption, stem the tide of democratic backsliding, and defend against authoritarianism. And then in the INL budget, you have a, a particular focus on the anti-corruption activities. So you mentioned some of that during your opening <laughs> statement, but I would like to drill down to one aspect of fighting corruption, which I believe is desperately needed within the State Department, and that's the capacity in each of our missions to understand the circumstances in the host country, uh, to get the best intelligence information about their system, and what can be done to fight corruption, 
and then impressing upon the host country our interest in helping them in dealing with anti-corruption measures. Uh, do we have uh, enough resources in this budget to be able to develop that type of capacity within the missions? Uh, thank you, uh, first of all, for, for putting a spotlight on that. Thank you for all of the work you've been doing uh, over many years. Uh, I think uh, of all of the uh, bad things out there that we're dealing with, uh, corruption in terms of the corrosive impact that it has on democracy is, is got to be very near the, uh, the top of the list. And parenthetically, I think uh, if we look at virtually any popular movement uh, over uh, the last uh, decade or 15 years, whether it's the Tunisian fruit vendor, uh, or whether it's Tahrir Square, or whether it's the Maidan uh, in Ukraine, whether it's protests in Brazil, the common denominator uh, each time is, uh, is revulsion at corruption. Sometimes it's the reason, it's certainly uh, a reason uh, that we see people at some point just get, get fed up. Uh, so we're determined to make sure that we have the resources to, to do exactly what you're talking about in, in a couple of ways. And, and we welcome working uh, with you going forward to make sure that this is as, as sharp as possible. Uh, first, we need the, um, the human resources, the, uh, the expertise in the department uh, and the ability to um, support and deploy that expertise, to your point, uh, to our embassy. So people who um, have the training, have the background, have the skill set to work on these issues. I think a part of our uh, request that is so significant to me is the uh, additional almost 500 positions. But this is not um, asking for just 500 positions in a, in a vacuum. There are specific areas where we know we need to build up our capacity that we'll look uh, to use this and other flexibilities uh, to, uh, to address. And the, this expertise on economic matters, on corruption is one of them. Uh, technology is another. Uh, China uh, is a third. Global health is a, is a fourth. So we're very focused there. Second, um, we have to do this in close collaboration and coordination with the other uh, expert agencies uh, in our government. And that, I think, is there's a real commitment to, to do that. Uh, the, uh, the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, who brings all of us together, is very focused on this. Uh, and so we have to do that. Third, I think you saw um, Vice President Harris just today uh, announce the surging of uh, experts to um, some countries in, um, uh, in Central America uh, to help them, uh, to the extent they're willing uh, to be helped, uh, deal with uh, endemic corruption. Uh, so we have some ability to surge expertise. Uh, the long and short of it is, though, I, I'd very much welcome working with you on this to make sure that uh, we do have uh, what we need. And we're certainly uh, very open to ideas for how we can do this more effectively and then make sure we're resourced appropriately. I appreciate that. And it also helps us that we then have the information we need to impose sanctions such as Global Magnitsky mm -hmm. by having that capacity in each of our, in each of our missions. The administration's talked about multinational approaches, and I certainly support multinational approaches. So let me talk about the sustainable development goals that were created in 2015. Uh, goal 16 deals with good governance, which is the areas that we're talking about here, and getting our international support for efforts to make significant improvements in governance. The prior administration failed to support the UN joint SDG fund, which is the sole UN funding vehicle for to catalyze to to energize private sector and other resources to support the SDGs. Given President Biden and your renewed commitment to American multilateralism and sustainable development, 
What steps will this administration take in order to advance the SDG goals, particularly Goal 16? Uh, I think we need to make sure that we are dedicating our appropriate share uh, of resources to, uh, to advance these goals. This is one of the reasons we want to try to uh, uh, make right by our commitments to uh, international institutions and to various programs in those institutions that advance the interests of the United States. Uh, parenthetically, when we, we, when we don't do that, uh, our influence and our ability to shape how these programs are carried out uh, is diminished uh, or lost. So we have an interest in making sure uh, that um, the focus that uh, these institutions bring to the problem uh, is, uh, is appropriate and effective. But the long and short of it is uh, we believe we need to, to, to fund uh, our commitments and then be at the table uh, in the room to help carry them out. And I would just add uh, in multinationalism, the Organization of American States, the OSCE, and other international organizations where United States leadership can play a, a critical role to focus those organizations in addition to the United Nations in these values that are critically important mm -hmm. to our national security. I would just urge you to, uh, to work with us to see whether we can't be more effective in getting multinational focus on dealing with corruption. I want to add uh, my uh, view in regards to the Iran circumstance. I agree with Chairman Menendez. He and I had similar views on the JCPOA and the, uh, President Trump's decision to, to lead the JCPOA. But I'll just make one point. The JCPOA was a lifetime prohibition about Iran being able to have a nuclear weapons program. That's correct. So we had sunsets that were now would be irrelevant to, uh, to that lifetime commitment. So when you talk about Whatever we get back into an agreement, it's got to make sure that there's a lifetime prohibition about Iran ever becoming a nuclear weapon state and you have uh, functioning agreements uh, uh, that you can identify to make sure they never get within a year of breakout. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. You. Senator Johnson. Hey, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I was part of an effort led by Senator Cruz and Senator Shaheen uh, to impose sanctions to stop the building of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And I have to admit, honestly, I was surprised at how unbelievably effective those sanctions were, and it stopped it. Uh, when you came before this committee about five months ago, I thought you were completely on board with uh, the continued halting of, of the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. I, I have to admit, I'm shocked at now the fact that yesterday and today, you are conceding the fact that it's going to get built. That would have been really nice to know five months ago. Uh, when did your thinking change on that? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, again, as we, as we discussed then, uh, unfortunately, construction started uh, on this bad idea in 2018. And when we last spoke, uh, the pipeline was well over 90% complete as a, as a physical uh, Yes, and it was, it was quite so, complete when we imposed sanctions and halted it last time. Why, why not continue the pause of sanctions? This, I'm sorry, your explanation literally makes no sense. So, so now we're conceding the building, we're going to do the, we're going to have it constructed, and now we're going to somehow impose, what, serious consequences? When Germany doesn't live up to providing the, the revenue relief for Ukraine, when Russia does use it as a weapon? As a practical matter, as we looked at this, uh, we all agreed uh, this pipeline is a bad idea. Uh, we uh, oppose it. Uh, we've, uh, the president has been clear about that for a long time. But as a very practical matter, with a, inheriting a pipeline that was 95% complete, 
Uh, none of the we, we, we stopped we stopped it the last time. Let, let's move on to Iran. No, in fact, we didn't. <laughs> it by definition. <laughs> let's move on to Iran. Uh, during the debate over the JCPOA, I offered an amendment to deem that a treaty. From my standpoint, that amendment should have passed 100 to zero, and had it passed 100 to zero, the JCPO, JCPOA would have been first a far better agreement, and you wouldn't be in a position where from one administration the next, a president can just cancel another executive agreement. So now you're engaged in further discussions with Iran. I, I have my doubts that you will end up with a better agreement. It's going to be worse. It'll embolden Iran. Um, don't you think, first of all, what justification is there something that is that significant? And again, you take a look at the State Department's own manuals in terms of how it defines a treaty. I think it's quite clear that the original JCPOA was a treaty. Don't you think any agreement that you enter into with Iran should be deemed a treaty and should be ratified in the United States Senate? Um, Senators, you know, uh, numerous uh, arms control and nonproliferation agreements reached by the United States were not treaties. Uh, and there are benefits, you're right, uh, to um, uh, enshrining something in a treaty. There are also uh, downsides in, some, in, in terms of some of the constraints that it actually would place on us. It's also more complicated. Uh, when you're dealing with a multi-party um, agreement, which was the case of the JCPOA. We had, of course, the, uh, the European partners. Uh, we had the Russians, the Chinese, not to mention uh, uh, the Iranians. So looking at the history uh, of uh, arms control, nonproliferation agreements, looking at what uh, would give us uh, maximum uh, flexibility, uh, and this was the, uh, the most effective way forward. Okay, well, uh, respectfully disagree. Uh, real quick, I, I did send a letter together with Senator Scott uh, inquiring as to why the State Department ended its investigation regarding the, the uh, gain of function and uh, the lab leak uh, origination of, of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, I think your response is due in January, on June 10th. I'm hoping you'll uh, respond and provide us the information we're requesting. Are you aware of that letter? Uh, yes, thank you, Senator. I am. And just to, uh, and we'll certainly uh, respond to that in a, in a timely fashion, but just to, uh, for what it's worth, to try to uh, uh, clear this up, um, because there's been a lot, unfortunately, of erroneous uh, reporting on this. The, uh, the study in question, um, the work in question, was um, uh, asked for by the, uh, by the Trump administration. Uh, they hired a contractor within the State Department to do an internal inquiry into the origins of, uh, of, of COVID-19 with a focus on the, uh, the lab leak um, scenario. Um, that work was completed. It wasn't terminated. It okay, was so ju just explain that when you return it to me. I, I, I sure. want to move on to another issue. So just respond to my, my oversight request. Finally, I want to talk about the budget as it relates to what the Biden administration is proposing to spend, I guess, to fix Central America. Uh, my first trip down to Central America, uh, I was, it was interesting what the presence of those countries talked about in terms of problems they were dealing with. And first it was corruption and then impunity. Mm -hmm. Obviously, I understand corruption. I thought, impunity, that's, that's odd. I mean, what, what are you talking about there? And the fact of the matter is, they're talking about the fact that the drug cartels are untouchable. And by the way, the drug cartels in Central America, because through our drug interdiction uh, efforts, we stopped or we certainly redirect the flow through the Caribbean and up through Central America, destroying those societies in many respects. So uh, I don't know what amount of money we can spend in Central America uh, to really address the drug lords. Um, 
I keep hearing the root cause of this problem is the, the violence in, in Central America. I would argue the root cause of the violence in Central America is America's insatiable demand for drugs. So the border crisis, which is current, the current crisis is completely <coughs> the result of the actions that President Biden took when he first entered office, ending the successful migrant protection policy, the agreements with those, those countries, and quite honestly, not completing the 250 miles of border wall that is bought and paid for. So I listened to Vice President Harris talking about, oh, yeah, we're going to secure the border. I see no evidence of that. Um, so t tell me how you can expect a few hundred million or bill, I, don't, I don't, don't exactly know the exact amount you're really proposing over the next couple of years during this administration of pouring into Central America to try and fix the push factor when the push factor is caused by our insatiable demand for drugs and the flow of migrants. And by the way, the presence of those countries were telling, pleading with me and on a bipartisan basis to other Senate colleagues, please fix your laws. This isn't good for us to lose our, our future, to have this outflow of, of you know, people. We need to rebuild our economies. So please, please explain how, how these policies are going to result in anything and how that money isn't going to just be completely wasted in Central America. Thank you. Um, there are a number of things that we need to do uh, and, uh, and do it uh, at the same time. We have to have, and we're determined to have, and we will have uh, a, uh, a secure border. We have to have a ra rational uh, immigration uh, policies, and uh, we have to deal with, uh, with these drivers. And, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, folks don't just wake up in the morning uh, in Guatemala or Honduras or El Salvador and say, uh, boy, it would be a lot of fun to just give up everything I know, uh, my family, my language, my culture, my community, um, take this incredibly hazardous journey, uh, put myself in the hands of coyotes, uh, come to the, the United States, and the border's closed in any event, uh, and uh, that would be a great thing to do. We know that there are very, very serious things in their lives that are pushing them to take uh, these, these chances, and these are things that I think uh, we can help address. To your point, you're, you're right. I think there are a number of factors involved. The uh, corruption, uh, lack of good governance, uh, the, uh, the impunity in terms of violence, the single biggest driver in most places, in my estimation, though, is fundamentally a lack of opportunity, a lack of a job, a lack of a paycheck, being able to put money on the table, feed their families. And this is a place where I think uh, we can have a real impact, working uh, primarily with the private sector, which has to be the engine uh, for these kinds of uh, investments. The government can help uh, and, and be a catalyst. Uh, we need to see that. Of course, governments need to do the work to put in place uh, some of the laws and structures that make private investment uh, more possible. So we're working on that as well. But if, Senator, if we don't also deal with these drivers, you know, it's just very hard to overcome uh, the uh, choice that people make uh, to, you know, put their lives in, uh, in someone else's hands uh, to try to come here. We have to be able to do all of that, and that's where the president's plan goes. I'd be happy when, you know, uh, the time comes we, this is not just throwing money at the problem. There, will, there are uh, and will be serious metrics, uh, serious oversight, serious benchmarks for what we're trying to accomplish. And last thing I'd mention uh, on this, if I can, um, part of the challenge is that you have governments that uh, we can't work effectively with because of uh, corruption uh, and uh, because of gross mismanagement. Well, 
uh, will be working with, uh, with others, with, uh, with the private sector, with civil society, with NGOs, uh, with uh, organizations that do this work, with local communities, as the case may be, to try to make sure that any funds that we ask our taxpayers to dedicate to this uh, are used wisely and effectively or, and are not wasted. And I really welcome an opportunity to work with uh, this committee on that. Thank you. Um, for the uh, information of all members, there's a vote that started at 307. Is the chair's intention to continue to work through and rotate as uh, members come in and out? Uh, because we have um, uh, a time finite with the secretary and we have members who want to ask questions. So I'm going to work through these votes. With that, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman and Mr. Secretary. Thank you for being here and for the hard work that you're doing to restore America's credibility in the international community. I have in New Hampshire, we have a a short border with Canada, but I have a number of constituents who have relatives in Canada. We have a number of businesses who do business in Canada. There is a lot of cross-border traffic, and the border closure has been a real hardship for so many of our citizens. Um, my office heard from a man, a <coughs> constituent in Belmont, whose mother had passed away in January in New Brunswick. Um, he wanted to go to the funeral because they couldn't delay it any later than May 31st. Um, the Canadian government told him in order to do that, he would have to quarantine for five days. He couldn't take the time off for, from work. He couldn't get a waiver. And so I, I appreciate that this has been a joint um, agreement between Canada and the United States. But at this point, given the increasing vaccination rate on both sides of the border, I hope that you will commit to doing everything you can to get that border open so that the hardship that my constituents and other constituents are experiencing um, will end and they can resume uh, normal relationships with their mm -hmm. families and business in the way that will benefit them. Uh, I very much appreciate, Senator, those, uh, uh, those hardships for all of the uh, border states uh, with Canada. This is something that um, I've engaged uh, my uh, Canadian counterpart on uh, multiple times. Uh, we're trying to um, uh, work through uh, these challenges. Uh, and I've uh, gotten some, I think, relatively more positive feedback uh, from him recently that I'm happy to, uh, to share with you. It's a work in progress. And if there are specifics, uh, specific instances or, or, or cases, please as well bring them to, uh, to my attention, to our attention, uh, so that I can also share them with our, our, our counterparts. But to your point, I think we're hopefully getting to the point. We're, we certainly are. Uh, Canada's a little bit um, behind right. where we are, but we're, we're getting to a better point. Um, well, good. I appreciate that, particularly as we're getting into the tourism season. There's a lot of cross-border yeah. um, traffic between Canada and the United States, and it's critical to our state and others along the border. Um, I want to follow up with the questions that have already been asked about Nord Stream 2, because as you know, this is something that I have been very concerned about. And I just returned um, from a trip to Kiev with my um, colleagues, Senators Murphy and Portman, who were also along. And one of the things we heard very loudly from our Ukrainian partners was just how devastating the loss of revenue will be once Russians stop using Ukraine as a transit route. Um, also, the concern about giving Russia another weapon to use against Europe and the other potential ramifications of the fallout from completion of Nord Stream 2. 
So you talked about trying to make the Ukrainians whole in terms of the transit fees, but can you also discuss what else we can do to support Ukraine if this pipeline becomes operational and what the Germans might be willing to do in that regard? Certainly. Uh, and I think there are a number of things that, uh, that we're looking at that we need to look at and, of course, uh, need Germany and others uh, to look at and, and, and ultimately take action on. Uh, one is the possibility of actually um, uh, extending the existing transit agreement uh, for many years into the future so that Ukraine would continue to benefit from the transit fees. If that uh, doesn't work, uh, I think um, finding ways to make Ukraine whole for the lost transit fees is something that the Europeans would need to, uh, to step up to. Uh, the other side of the coin that you just alluded to uh, is making sure that uh, we have in place and Europe has in place uh, appropriate um, uh, reserves and appropriate um, means to counter any attempt by Russia to use uh, gas or, or oil uh, as a coercive uh, uh, political tool uh, so that they can't be subject to blackmail. Um, there's another thing that's really important here, which sometimes gets uh, missed in the equation, which is Ukraine's own energy potential and uh, efficiency potential is very, very much unrealized. And if uh, Ukraine used energy more efficiently than it does, um, a lot of the leverage that Russia might acquire uh, will, um, will be diminished significantly. So there's a lot of work to be, be done there. Finally, um, I think that when it comes to uh, Russian misbehavior uh, in general in, um, uh, in that part of the world, uh, we're looking to our, our allies and partners to uh, commit upfront to taking uh, action and to taking steps uh, in response so that we don't have to scramble uh, if Russia does something bad to try to bring, bring people along. All of that and more uh, is on, is on the table, and we're looking uh, to Germany in particular to, uh, to make good on some of these things. Well, thank you. As you've heard, this is a very important bipartisan issue for this committee mm -hmm. and for Congress, and we will be watching closely and trying to be helpful in any way we can as we figure out how to, how to negate the potential weapon that Russia could have against not just Ukraine but all of Western Europe. Um, I want to go back to um, Afghanistan. You alluded to some of the challenges there in your opening statement. Um, and we saw on May 8th a bombing of a school um, in Kabul, a girls' school, um, which resulted in about 80 deaths. Many were the school girls. And we know what the Taliban's position is on women and girls. We've seen the assassination deliberate assassination efforts against women who are working. So what steps is the State Department taking to provide for the safety of women and girls um, after our military has left the country? And who, do we have a focal point in the State Department for someone who is um, working on these issues who we can continue to talk with as we hear from our um, the women leaders in Afghanistan are so worried about what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, first, just with regard to the, the attack that you, that you referenced, I mean, we're all, we all know we witness horrible things happening every single day uh, in places that we're all focused on. I've got to say, um, that one in particular, uh, I think it's hard to think of anything uh, more horrific. Uh, the deliberate 
uh, murder of these uh, these young uh, young girls at, in a school. Uh, that that hit me profoundly as well. Um, Thank you, and I I would just point out that this committee and the Senate just passed a resolution condemning that attack, which I hope sends an important message not just to the Taliban but to the women of Afghanistan. Well, I think it is important, and and it does because here here's what's uh, important. First, even as we withdraw our forces from Afghanistan and NATO withdraws its forces, we are not withdrawing from Afghanistan. We are uh, determined to sustain a strong uh, embassy and a strong diplomatic presence. We're working uh, with uh, other partner countries uh, so that uh, they do the same. We're trying to put in place uh, what is necessary to sustain that, and we'll look forward to actually uh, sharing that with the committee in the weeks ahead. Um, and as a result, uh, to continue uh, many of uh, most of the programs that, uh, that we've had in place, uh, we've committed over the years, uh, as you know um, better than I do, nearly $800 million to programs for women and girls in Afghanistan. Uh, we plan to uh, sustain uh, that programming, also more broadly economic development, humanitarian security force uh, support. Um, I acknowledge it's not gonna be uh, necessarily a simple proposition. Uh, it comes with real, real challenges, but I believe that uh, with uh, the right uh, embassy uh, presence and uh, the right team, we can sustain these programs and we can provide appropriate oversight to make sure the money is being well spent. That's one piece. The other piece is um, an, an Afghan, a future Afghanistan that does not uphold these basic rights, including the gains made for women and girls, is going to be a pariah internationally. It is not going to have support from, uh, from anyone, certainly not from the United States. That uh, also, I think, is going to have to get factored into the thinking of um, future governance in Afghanistan. Well. Thank you, I'm out of time, but I certainly hope that's the case and that the United States will continue to lead the charge on um, getting support from the international community to hold the Taliban accountable for what they're doing. Thank you. Uh, Senator Romney. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Secretary, it's good to see you and appreciate the, the work that you're uh, leading and, uh, and applaud many of the initiatives that uh, you've described today and that you're carrying out. Uh, one thing you said today that I want to make a comment about, which is that looking in Central America to try and uh, deal with some of the uh, illegal immigration crisis that we're seeing at the border and, and attempting to, to deal with some of the root causes, as you described it, of illegal immigration and, and some funding providing to the Central Americans to, to help deal with some of those root causes. I'm concerned that a lot of that funding is going to end up in corrupt hands. I'd also note that that, uh, that fighting crime and poverty there is quite a task because we have crime and poverty here that we haven't been able to solve. How we're going to solve them in someone else's country uh, is beyond me. Uh, and, and, and I also believe that the great majority of people who come here to uh, illegally come here for better opportunity, which is part of our free enterprise system as opposed to the socialism they're living under, and for freedom. And they're in autocracies. Uh, uh, and so I, I just, uh, I would note that I think the, the best solutions to this crisis are, are completing the barrier, um, mandatory e-verify. Uh, these are the kinds of things I think will make the difference. Uh, but let me note on another topic. I'm, I'm concerned about what I read about Mexico uh, and about the number of assassinations that have occurred in, uh, in Mexico leading up to their elections. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it, it, I mean, it, it read, and I, it, you know, I don't have the, the sources of information that you have, obviously, 
but it read as if it was almost a failed state. I mean, uh, that, I mean, there were, we're not just talking about a, a few, we're talking about, I mean, I think the number was like over 80 people had been assassinated leading up to the elections. This is extraordinary. This is a, a, a country that is apparently being ridden with uh, crime lords uh, taking over the, the government. Is, how bad is it, and, and is there effort that we can help uh, uh, s support the government in trying to uh, bring stability to that country? Now, I, Senator, I very much uh, share your concern uh, about that, about insecurity in general, these, uh, this political violence as well in particular, uh, and of course the violence being perpetrated by uh, these um, uh, uh, drug gangs, uh, transnational criminal organizations uh, that are involved. Um, one of the things that we've done uh, is re-engaged with the Mexicans to restart uh, and uh, hopefully really re-energize the work that we've been doing together uh, on security. So we have a high-level dialogue on security issues that uh, is now uh, restarting, as well as one on, uh, on economic issues. Uh, and so I believe uh, that we can be uh, helpful to uh, the Mexicans in getting a better grip uh, on some of this violence. Uh, I acknowledge uh, not, uh, not easy uh, at all, but, uh, but necessary. Uh, and uh, there, too, uh, would welcome working with, uh, with this committee uh, on good ideas to try to advance that. But uh, the bottom line is we're reengaged with the Mexican government on security issues to see if we can be helpful. Thank you. Um, another topic uh, going across the world in, in Taiwan. I'm, I'm very concerned that, that what the Taiwanese are hearing from the Chinese is, uh, uh, is harming our interests there and the interests of, of freedom. Uh, according to the ambassador from Taiwan, um, she indicated that she received uh, social media that said that Americans have so much vaccine that we're using it to provide vaccines for our animals, our pets, our dogs, and our cats, and that, we're, that, the, that the lives of, of Taiwanese is not worth as much as an American dog. Um, clearly, it's in our interest in a very critical nation in the world to see vaccinations that we have available going to uh, to Taiwan. I'm concerned if COVAX is the source of, of providing that, uh, those vaccines, that COVAX will believe, will be, if you will, pressured by China, will not give uh, the Taiwanese what they need. Are we go giving directly the vaccinations that, that Taiwan needs? And can we make the number large enough? I understand it was announced at 750,000 uh, doses. If that's a Pfizer uh, or Moderna dose, that's, you know, half that number in terms of vaccinated people. Uh, they need something much closer to mm -hmm. two million. Uh, can can we be more? I, I just hope mm -hmm. that you'll bring extra attention to that issue, uh, Senator. In short, uh, yes, uh, we're making sure that uh, vaccines do get uh, to Taiwan. Uh, and uh, just to be be clear about uh, what we're doing and how we're doing it, uh, the president announced, as you know, that we would be pushing out between now and early July 80 million uh, vaccine doses to include a combination of of um, uh, AstraZeneca. Uh, but also Pfizer, Moderna, uh, and we're doing um, some of that in coordination with COVAX, but with even in coordination with COVAX, we can direct where uh, the vaccines go, and uh, some of it just, uh, just directly. The first uh, 25 million doses uh, is what we, uh, we, we describe the allocation for those uh, to include um, uh, doses for, for Taiwan. There are another... Um, 55 million uh, to follow again between now and, and early July. And then beyond that, two things are very important. One is we'll continue after the 80 million to provide excess doses uh, 
in the months ahead as we have them, because we will, we will have them. Parenthetically, the 80 million doses, we will, by a factor of five, uh, be uh, the leading country in sharing, sharing vaccines uh, with the world by a factor of five. China's sold, sold a lot to other countries, but in terms of actually giving them to other countries, by a factor of five. But equally important, um, we are working very hard right now on significantly increasing uh, production capabilities uh, so that we can uh, make sure that more vaccines are produced more quickly uh, and that we can be the leader in vaccinating the world. And of course, uh, as you know, that's also profoundly, it's not just the right thing to do, it's profoundly in our interest because as long as this virus is replicating uh, somewhere, it's gonna be mutating. And if it's mutating, it could come back to bite us. So we have a strong incentive to get ahead of this. And I believe that uh, with the work that we're doing, the president's doing on this, uh, we will be the leader in making sure uh, that the world's vaccinated, including Taiwan. I have very little time, and so that means you have very little time for this answer, but I'm uh, coming back from Europe and the meeting with the G7. Uh, to what extent are you comfortable with or have confidence in the reaction of, of our other G7 members to, to, the, uh, uh, to the threat that's posed by China? I think, uh, Senator, uh, quickly, and I'm happy to go into more detail at, a, at another time, uh, I think there's a rising appreciation for the challenges posed by, uh, by China, uh, including, for example, uh, to, um, uh, when it comes to technology uh, and their various uh, networks. We spent a lot of time talking about that, about resilient supply chains. Uh, that concern is, is, is rising uh, across the board. Now, there are differences you know, among uh, certain countries, but I think the work that uh, the Senate is doing, including, uh, I believe, this afternoon, uh, is going to have a very meaningful impact, and we appreciate that. Thank you. Senator Coons. Mr. Secretary, good to talk with you again following this morning's uh, Appropriations Committee hearing. Um, just following up on what Senator Romney and you were just discussing, uh, I think this is an important moment for bold vaccine diplomacy by the United States. We have long been a world leader in public health. Um, we have, because of the efforts of this administration and the previous one, mm -hmm developed uh, the world-leading most effective vaccines uh, because of President Biden's relentless focus on vaccinating the American people. We're now at the threshold of 70% vaccination in a number of states, and I do think it's time for bold vaccine diplomacy. Um, what more could we be doing in the Senate on a bipartisan basis to send a strong signal of support um, for taking decisive steps? I think the announcement last week was terrific. Uh, what I heard in both Taiwan and South Korea uh, as well as from other countries was very encouraging. Um, but what else would be helpful um, for you to hear from Congress about this initiative? Thank you for, uh, again, for, for putting a spotlight on that because I could not agree more with, uh, with you, with Senator Romney, on the importance of this and also the, uh, honestly, the opportunity uh, to show our, our, our leadership. So I think the, the next most important step beyond the vaccines that we have uh, available uh, to share is increasing um, significantly production capacity in the United States uh, as well as in other parts of the world. If we stay on the, the current trajectory in terms of the, uh, the vaccines produced and the pace at which they're being uh, administered, uh, we're not going to get to global herd immunity, roughly 70%, as you know very well, until 2024. That's unacceptable, or at least it should be. We do, I believe, especially if we manage to uh, significantly increase production and uh, and then share uh, that production. We can get there a lot, a lot faster. So I think, and uh, I think the president will be coming back to uh, 
uh, to you on this, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the relatively near future, uh, things that we can do to, uh, to boost production. As you know, um, I had a, a hand in the BUILD Act and in standing up yeah. the DFC. Yeah. I think it's a tool that in partnership with some of our key allies could be critical. While in South Korea, I had a number of conversations about vaccine partnership in terms of manufacturing. Would be excited to work with you on yeah. this. Um, let me move on to the questions that have been raised a number of times today about the Northern Triangle. Um, I'll add to that the Sahel. Um, two areas of the world where we've got significant fragility, a, a band of several states in West Africa, a grouping of three states in Central America, uh, where corruption, impunity, um, widespread uh, insecurity, the impacts of climate change um, are having a dramatic impact. Um, the Global Fragility Act uh, is a bill that was signed into law um, that Senator Lindsey Graham and I worked hard on that provides a framework uh, for <coughs> accountability, for metrics, and for a State Department-led uh, partnership between State, USAID, and DOD on dealing with fragility. Um, how do you see the Global Fragility Act framework being relevant um, to places like the Sahel or the Northern Triangle, and how can that help focus um, the difficult work the Vice President is currently leading in terms of uh, investing in stabilizing three very difficult and troubled, um, three countries that have um, a very troubled current status, but where um, successfully stabilizing them is essential uh, to our security and stability as well. Uh, a couple things. First, uh, thank you for, for mentioning the, the Sahel, and thank you for your work there uh, as well. I think um, we have a deep concern about spreading instability um, in the Sahel. We have uh, roughly 20 million people uh, who are in need uh, in, uh, in that area, Burkina Faso, Chad, Mali, uh, Niger, Mauritania. Uh, and that, of course, becomes a, a breeding ground for violent extremism, uh, as, uh, as we've seen. Uh, we are partnered with a number of other countries uh, to uh, act on countering violent extremism, uh, on governance, uh, on humanitarian. Uh, we're the largest humanitarian donor in the neighborhood, as, as you know. In March, we, uh, we, uh, we had an, an additional $80 million or so. But to uh, the, the more specific point, I, I think the Global Fragility Act is, an, is a very important vehicle for us to be able to advance uh, this work. The, the, the budget request uh, that we have before you includes uh, $185 million to help implement uh, the, um, the Global Fragility Act. There's $125 million uh, for the Prevention and Stabilization Fund. Uh, I think $25 million uh, uh, above the uh, FY21 uh, enacted uh, budget. Uh, $60 million for the Complex Crises uh, Fund, uh, which there is, I think, uh, roughly $30 million above the uh, the FY21 enacted. So the resources would support the actual implementation uh, of the act to try to do what, uh, what you set out to do, which is to actually anticipate and prevent a conflict because um, uh, an ounce of prevention, right, uh, beats a pound of cure, uh, but also to support uh, these um, inclusive, locally driven political processes uh, to try to stabilize some of these conflict-ridden uh, places, uh, work with our external partners, improve and integrate uh, our, uh, our capabilities. So right now where we are uh, is we're finalizing the selection of uh, five priority countries or regions uh, based on, uh, you know, our assessment of the, of, the, of the data, the opportunity for impact, um, and, uh, and national security priorities. And we're doing that across the, uh, across the administration with the relevant departments and agencies. And then um, as, we, as we get that settled, uh, we want to come to you and, uh, and consult on that uh, share our thinking, uh, and then refine it 
and get uh, uh, and then get go to the president for final approval. Wonderful. Uh, last question. I don't uh, mean to seem churlish because you've just dedicated a huge amount of time to testifying in front of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, House Appropriations, Senate Appropriations, and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. <coughs> uh, but in the context um, that many of us have worked in, your two predecessors um, appeared once. And we had enormous difficulty uh, getting them back uh, to testify in front of foreign relations or appropriations and to uh, engage around their budgets. Um, that was at a time when they were proposing dramatic uh, cuts in spending. Um, I'm very encouraged by the budget that the administration's putting forward uh, for the State Department, for AID, for a number of other critical international functions. Um, can we count on you to come back? Because you are such a good advocate for the State Department as someone who served for decades uh, here in the Senate and in foreign policy. I just want to make sure that we're going to have another opportunity for you to engage with the Appropriations Committee and Foreign Relations Committee uh, as we try and enact a robust budget that meets the needs of this moment. Uh, I'm committed to uh, engaging uh, this committee uh, as well as the uh, Appropriations Committees uh, in a, a whole variety of ways, whether it's uh, in, uh, in, in hearings, in, uh, in private conversations, in individual conversations. I made a commitment to the chairman uh, during uh, the, the confirmation process that, uh, that I would do that, and uh, I, uh, I'll be held to that. Great. Thank you very much, Mr. Thank Secretary. you. And to, this, to the Secretary's credit, he has kept his word on that. Uh, Senator Portman is with us virtually, I understand. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you, Mr. Secretary, for being here. Uh, I'll get right down to my questions. As you know uh, from Senator Shaheen's comments, I was on this congressional delegation recently to Lithuania, to Ukraine, and to Georgia. We spent quite a bit of time talking about the Belarus issues in Lithuania, including meeting with the opposition leader. Uh, I want to start by just saying uh, it won't surprise you to hear that I strongly disagree with the administration's position on Nord Stream 2, which is a reversal of a previous uh, position. And waiving the congressionally mandated sanctions on Nord Stream 2 is going to have a detrimental impact on these other countries in the region, particularly Ukraine, where the pipeline currently goes through Ukraine, where uh, there's about a $3 billion uh, fee that is uh, badly needed in Ukraine these days, and, and uh, that's in our interest. But one issue that has come to my attention that I had not fully realized was the threat they're feeling, not just from their eastern border, where Russia has recently sent 110,000 troops and left equipment there, by the way, and left most of those troops, but also on the northern border with Belarus, where Russia's military presence is increasing. So more and more pressure on them. And again, something that perhaps isn't fully understood is that the pipeline itself, in a way, was a, a way to encourage the safety of Ukraine and that Russia would be unlikely to want to destroy its own pipeline should it uh, make a mistake and, 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 and engage in further aggression towards Ukraine. So can you comment on why you changed your mind? I assume you've already talked about this today. I wasn't able to listen to all the testimony. And, and, and how you answer Ukraine, you know, when they say, among other things, that no one even bothered to talk to President Zelensky about it before this decision was made. Uh, thank you very much, Senator. Yes, we did have a, an opportunity to talk about this a little bit uh, before, but uh, uh, just to focus in on it uh, again. Uh, first, let me just say, uh, President Biden uh, spoke to President uh, Zelensky today uh, he invited him to to Washington in the uh, uh, in the coming uh, uh, weeks, uh, and uh, they had a, a very good conversation. Also, for the record, um, we did um, uh, share with our uh, Ukrainian partners uh, our um, uh, our intentions when it came to the uh, the pipeline, and maybe that 
information didn't get directly to President Zelensky, uh, it, it certainly should have. Um, well, I think it certainly should have been communicated to him. And by the way, I, I do appreciate the fact that the phone call was made. Thank you. I'm sure you played a big role in that. Uh, not as good as having uh, Georgia and Ukraine present, at least for you know a 10 or 15 minute session with with the NATO uh, summit. And that's what I think is really needed because otherwise it just sends the wrong signal to Russia. And uh, you know this is something that I know you understand well, but uh, these signals are important. And it's it's the narrative and it's a disinformation that Russia will now engage in that makes it even more difficult for Ukraine at a very difficult time. I, I won't ask you to go into your your explanation. I'll, I'll find it from the previous uh, questions. But I'm, I must say I'm I'm disappointed, and I know that you yourself, you know, had a strong view on this at one point that Nord Stream Two is not something that was in our in our interest. With regard to an ambassador to Ukraine, we've got a good career team there, as you know. You were there recently, mm. and thank you for making the trip. We need an ambassador. I assume you heard this from all the folks uh, in the government in Ukraine, as we did. Uh, I've been there with an ambassador and without an ambassador, and it's a big difference. And as you know, we came very close to getting General Dayton through the process last time. Uh, why have you all not uh, nominated someone, and what's your plan on nominating an ambassador for Ukraine? Uh, thank you, Senator. We're, we're, we're trying to move forward on that uh, as quickly as possible. Um, and we have... Uh, a process uh, that, uh, that that I'm sure you're familiar with uh, at the State Department in terms of uh, putting forward uh, ambassadors. We're in the midst of uh, of that process now, uh, and I anticipate that uh, that will happen in, in, in relatively uh, short order. But let me just say that is a priority uh, for uh, for us and for the president. I want to make sure that we have the strongest possible person leading the strongest possible team uh, in Ukraine. Well, Mr. Secretary, when you nominate someone, uh, I assume it'll be a career person who has a, a good background, um, and uh, I'm glad you're looking to someone who has experience mm -hmm. because it's a critical post. Uh, but I'll be one of those who will be very eager to help you get that through the process as Thank quickly you. as possible. I know the chair and ranking member will agree with me. Um, on the NATO map issue, in 2008, then Senator Biden introduced a resolution calling for a NATO membership action plan for Ukraine and for Georgia. And by the way, that was the same year as you know that NATO said they were going to uh, have both NATO, both both Georgia and Ukraine come into NATO. It was a question of when. That resolution passed the Senate easily. It had support of a lot of members, including a senator named Obama, one named Clinton, one named McCain. Totally bipartisan. Does this administration still support a membership action plan for Ukraine and Georgia? Uh, we support uh, Ukraine membership uh, in uh, in NATO. Uh, it currently has. Uh, all of the tools it needs, because since the membership action plan was created, uh, a number of other very important tools were uh, were developed to help countries uh, prepare uh, for uh, possible NATO membership, including uh, an annual program uh, that Ukraine benefits from. And in our estimation, Ukraine has all the tools that it needs uh, to continue to move forward uh, in that direction. Uh, and so we're and we're uh, working with it on a virtually a, a daily basis. Uh, MAP itself uh, has to, would have to be done uh, in full consensus with, uh, with other NATO members. Uh, I think uh, there are some countries that uh, are uh, less supportive than others of, of that right now. But irrespective of MAP, uh, Ukraine has the tools it needs to move forward uh, toward being uh, uh, ready for, uh, for membership in the future. The other piece of this, though, as you know, and, and all the, given all the time and investment you've made on this, as important as its uh, preparations um, uh, militarily, uh, strategically, uh, is uh, the preparation when it comes to 
having good governance and um, dealing with the uh, aggression that's eating at Ukraine from within, uh, and that is uh, uh, corruption uh, and, um, uh, and a system that works effectively uh, to deal with it. So what we also need to see from Ukraine is continued progress on, uh, on that level as well. Well, and of course, there's been enormous progress made. We have looked back only to 2014 mm. when that began, and the electoral changes, the judicial reforms, and others, uh, some of the economic reforms have been substantial. And I agree, more need to be done, uh, and more has to be done, frankly, I think, in order for NATO membership to be completed. But I would hope, as I said earlier about the narrative, that we're not backing off on membership action plan, understanding that you've got to convince the other NATO members to go along. The United States tends to uh, have a significant influence in, in NATO, and and we're their champion. You know, we're the country they look to, and they're under enormous pressure right now. Uh, this buildup on the eastern border is something that mystifies everybody, who, uh, except that Russia must have some designs on mm -hmm. uh, continuing their aggression and holding on to to Crimea and, and and the Donbass. So, and then again, what's happening in in Belarus is an additional very serious concern. So, my time is probably uh, over, but the global it engagement centers we talked about. And we look forward to following up with you about the Global Engagement Center. Thank you. Much request. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Secretary. Thank you, Senator. All right. Uh, Senator Kane. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thank you, Mr. Secretary. This has been very helpful. Um, because members have been putting down their views about the JCPOA, I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. I was one of the, the largest proponents of the JCPOA on this committee, and I continue to be, and I believe it was disastrous for the Trump administration to back out of it. The first sentence of the first paragraph, as I recall, uh, said that Iran reaffirms that it will never seek to purchase, acquire, or develop a nuclear weapon. That is correct an enforceable agreement that is correct. signed before the entire global community, not only with allies, the United States, with adversaries, the United States, Russia, and China. Permanent, enforceable, would give, would give the U.S. grounds for, I think, um, defendable military action should Iran have violated it. That's correct. Um, the agreement contained many other provisions with respect to limitations on Iran's nuclear program. Now, many of those provisions were temporary. Some expired in five years, some expired in 10, some expired in 15, some expired in 25. But there was one other permanent part of the agreement. At year eight in the agreement, the Iranian legislature was required to permanently embrace the additional protocol inspection requirements of the IAEA, which at the time and today was the state of the art mm -hmm. in terms of inspection. So a, a, a permanent agreement never to purchase, acquire, develop, nuclear weapons, and a permanent inspection regime that would enable us to determine if they were violating their agreement. And, and, and what did we give up to get that? What did we give up? The uh, ranking member said, we gave them a lot of money. We gave them their money. Great work by Chairman Menendez and others in putting a sanctions regime in mm -hmm. place had led us to be able to freeze money that was not our money, what American taxpayer dollars, it was Iranian money. And so they got their own money back and in exchange agreed to permanently pledge to the entire world that they would never have a nuclear program. Why the Trump administration would want to tear up that agreement and allow Iran to go back to, okay, I guess we don't have to abide by our side of it anymore. I just am continuously flummoxed by it. So if you could return to a compliance for compliance, it wouldn't turn Iran into a good actor, but 
they would be a bad actor without a nuclear program rather than a bad actor rushing toward a nuclear program. I'll never forget, as a member of this committee, going to Israel in January of 2015 with the then chairman, Republican Bob Corker, to sit in Prime Minister Netanyahu's office and ask about what Israel thought about our nuclear negotiations. The Prime Minister was completely against it. Hmm. We had a meeting scheduled the next day with Tamir Pardo, the head of Mossad in Tel Aviv. The Prime Minister told us that meeting was canceled, that we were not going to be able to go do it. And our Republican committee chair had the backbone to look him in the face and say, if you cancel that meeting, we're canceling all the rest of the meetings here in Israel. We'll leave, we'll leave tomorrow. We won't have a single other meeting. Hastily, the meeting suddenly reappeared on the schedule. And we went to Tel Aviv, and we sat down in the offices of the Mossad with Tamir Pardo and others. And what they told us is, look, we don't like Iran. We don't know whether this is going to work, but what we do know is that the maximum pressure campaign is not working. We're hurting Iran's economy, but we're causing them to floor it in terms of developing a nuclear weapons program. So if you could return to compliance for compliance and get Iran once again to say, we will never seek to purchase, acquire, or develop nuclear weapons ever, and we will permanently agree to the additional protocol of the IAEA, I would be strongly supportive on one condition. There is a but to this long intro. <laughs> Get American hostages out of Iran. I don't think doing a deal with American hostages still in Iran is a good idea. And I, and I would say that would need to be a precondition for me. And I would hope that the administration would take that seriously. Um, we had a hearing this morning in Armed Services, um, Mr. Secretary, uh, about the U.S.-China relationship. And obviously, this has dominated much of the discussion, too. But I couldn't help bring up a wonderful quote of George Kennan in Foreign Affairs, 1947, the, so the Sources of Soviet Conduct. Here is his quote. He basically says the way that the U.S. needs to be strong in any bilateral competition of this kind is be strong internally. Exhibitions of indecision, disunity, and internal disintegration within this country have an exhilarating effect on the whole communist movement. At each evidence of these tendencies, a thrill of hope and excitement goes through the communist world. The most important thing we can do to be strong vis-a-vis -vis China is be strong internally. They celebrate when they see us in chaos. They celebrate when they see an attack on the US Capitol by domestic insurrectionists. They celebrate when they see a Congress of the United States fighting over whether we even want to analyze what happened in order to prevent it from happening again. So you have a big job to go out to the world and get good work done with respect to shoring up China, but we've got a lot of work to do here to demonstrate unity of purpose and resolve. I think the bill that we're about to pass on the Senate floor, which is built largely on this committee's nearly unanimous work on a China bill a month or so ago, is a really good piece of this. But the other thing we need to do with respect to China, and then here's my last question for you, is what they most fear about us is not our military, not even our economy. What they most fear about us is our network of allies, because they don't really have them. People understand China is predatory, self-interested, and they're not an ally or a partner in a traditional sense. They don't like NATO. They don't like the Quad. 
They don't like U.S.-India cooperation. They hated the idea of a trans-Pacific partnership with the U.S. more engaged in Asia. They hate the network of alliances. So tell us about the Summit for Democracy and what the Biden administration and the State Department are going to do in planning this gathering of the global democracies to share best practices, to look in the mirror and be self-critical, and to try to improve and strengthen democratic ties. That will be the thing that will most rattle the cage of Chinese leadership. Uh, well, well, first, Senator, I don't think I have a, a word to add or, or to change uh, based on what you, what you just said. Um, and actually, your description of the uh, planning for the, the summit is also uh, right on. I think um, we're, we're, we're actively doing that. We look forward to hopefully the participation of uh, members of, uh, of this committee, uh, but well before that, uh, to sharing our thinking in, uh, in more detail. Uh, about uh, what we're doing, but to the point that you just made. Uh, I think this is an opportunity for uh, countries to, uh, democratic countries to, to come together to look at the uh, different challenges to democracy that we're each facing, including uh, internally, because there are, there's a lot, of, a lot of common denominators that manifest itself in different ways, uh, but we want to have uh, that conversation, as well as looking at what we can do uh, to strengthen, uh, to shore up, to make more resilient uh, democracies uh, around the world, as well as have a, uh, a common agenda on a number of the most critical issues, uh, dealing with autocracies uh, being uh, being right at the, the top of the list. But um, I'm, I'm looking forward to an opportunity uh, in the, uh, hopefully in the relatively near future, just starting to share some more detailed thinking and to get thinking from uh, from this committee about how we can make this not, and, and by the way, not just a, a one-off, uh, but um, part of an ongoing uh, process and ongoing um, dialogue among democracies that, to deal with the challenges we face. I'm, I'm over my time. Thanks for your indulgence, Mr. Chair. Thank you. Senator Haggerty. Mr. Worker. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Secretary, it's good to be with you again today. Um, Mr. Secretary, I'd like to applaud you for uh, your support of the Abraham Accords. As recently as April of this year, you were at the, United, uh, the Israeli Embassy here to the United States, speaking in a very positive vein about um, what the Abraham's Accords have done to bring peace and stability to a very important region of the world in the Middle East. Uh, I'd also applaud our uh, National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, who talked about this in late January, uh, specifically saying that the Abraham Accords brought about greater security for the region, greater economic prosperity for the region, and it was in America's interest. Mm -hmm. And I agree with those statements. Um, I was just in Israel, as I mentioned yeah. to you this morning, and um, I met with a number of Israeli business leaders while I was there. They have every interest in seeing the progress that was underway, that is underway, continue. Mm -hmm. I was encouraged by the fact that they are doing business right now. I met with two businessmen mm -hmm. who are doing business in the UAE yeah. and trying to continue this momentum uh, forward. I, I think that uh, it is a very positive development that uh, that is undertaken. I think the momentum in that direction has been very positive. I look forward to your comments on how you would continue to move us down that lane. Yeah, Senator, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, I think uh, two things that, that we're working on. One is with uh, those countries that uh, have, are already uh, part of the courts, that is they are moving forward on normalization one way or another with Israel. Uh, we are engaged with them as well as with Israel and looking to see how we can uh, be uh, supportive, uh, how we can help, uh, help move that process forward if there are any um, moments where things get a little bit stuck, maybe we can help uh, unstick things. But to your point, I think people are uh, extremely 
uh, receptive, and uh, this is going to have, um, I think, um, very positive concrete manifestations in people's lives in particular because of the uh, increased uh, business, uh, trade, economic relationships, among other things. Second, though, is we are also looking to see if there are countries that are not yet part yeah. of the Accords that might be interested in, uh, in joining. We're very actively looking at that uh, and talking to countries that may have an interest and encouraging them uh, in that direction. Well, I appreciate Senator Kuhn's comments in this regard, and I would join him to say we look forward to working with you and utilizing the tools that have already been developed with the Development Finance Corporation and others that yeah. we can, can utilize to continue to move down this path, because I think that does prosperity will breed peace, and, and I think the momentum is important there. Another side of this, though, is Iran. And uh, those same people expressed to me a concern about our appeasement of Iran. And were we to continue moving in this direction, it's going to make it more difficult for us in the Middle East. I appreciate the reasons why the Europeans are there in Vienna trying to encourage this, but our partners and our allies in the Middle East are very concerned about our posture toward Iran. I mentioned, to you this, mentioned this to you earlier this morning, but uh, to the extent that uh, Iran were to receive sanctions relief, uh, I'm very concerned that those dollars not find their way back to proxies like Hamas and Hezbollah. Uh, I just witnessed the devastation on the ground of what that Iranian technology and Iranian funding can do and can deliver in terms of the havoc and death to civilians uh, through that. I also am concerned about the aid to, to, to the Palestinian Authority uh, with Hamas's involvement in the Gaza Strip, the efforts to rebuild. Um, the Israeli leaders that I met with were very clear to me that those funds find their way into tunnels. They described a water project that had been uh, you know, funded for, for the Gaza area that the pipes for the water project got converted into weaponry mm. that landed in Israel. I think it's going to take a tremendous amount of diligence. Uh, I would prefer to not do this until Hamas, is, their, their, their grip on the area has been changed. Um, and I'm going to be very focused on, again, seeing that, that uh, we be very good stewards of taxpayer dollars and not allow these dollars in any way or respect to get into the hands of terrorists again. Uh, Iran is again, under, is again restated its willingness and desire to rearm Hamas and help them build their, their terrorism infrastructure. So I am extraordinarily concerned mm -hmm. about any move that would put more financial capability into the hands of Iran. Um, I'd like to turn our, our discussion though for a bit to the East Asia Pacific region. Mm -hmm. Um, you have, uh, and I've discussed this, I think that the Indo-Pacific strategy is absolutely critical to American uh, safety and prosperity. The Biden administration's own plans underscore the fact that China is the only nation that's really capable of, uh, of mounting resistance to America and, and, and uh, becoming uh, you know, a greater and greater threat, not only to America, but to the world every day. Um, the State Department plays a very important role in this region. And looking at the budget, um, the allocation of resources there. Uh, we, we put more resources in Africa, we put more resources in the Bureau of European and Eurasian Affairs than, than we do in the uh, East Asia Pacific region. And I just wanted to get your thoughts about the resourcing of the State Department in this area and where you see it going. Uh, I, I very much appreciate that and uh, appreciate as well all of the work that you've done, in, including in prior capacities uh, in, this, um, uh, in, in this area. Look, to your point, um, this is the, the Indo-Pacific is the front line of the, uh, the competition with, uh, with China. Uh, China dedicates about 50% uh, of its assistance uh, and 50% of its economic uh, diplomacy uh, to the, uh, the Indo-Pacific. 
Um, we have asked for in the uh, budget uh, resources to, uh, uh, to help contend with that, but this has to be a whole of, uh, of government enterprise. We talked a little bit earlier, for example, uh, about the DFC, something I know you, you know very, uh, very well, uh, and other instruments that we have uh, to um, compete more effectively and that we're determined uh, to bring to bear. But I think we're, we're looking at this uh, uh, politically, and of course, I think it was very important that the president convened the first ever leaders level uh, meeting of the, of the Quad, uh, and we're moving forward on that. Uh, we actually, we have uh, working groups among the Quad countries, uh, the United States, India, Australia, Japan, uh, I applaud um, that effort. And, and then uh, at the same time, uh, there is, of course, the economic uh, aspect of this, mm -hmm. uh, where things like the DFC uh, and others come into, uh, into play. Uh, there is the, uh, the military and deterrent uh, piece that's, uh, that's very important and that we're working on. Uh, in other words, we have to work uh, this uh, across the, uh, the entire government. But let me just to uh, assure you, in terms of our focus and our resources, uh, we believe, as you do, that uh, the Indo-Pacific is a, a critical destination for them. Thank you. I'll just close with one, one comment. I was very encouraged by your report from the G7 that your counterparts uh, are appreciating and understanding the threat mm -hmm. from China, particularly from a technology standpoint. And you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. The, the, the Clean Network Initiative, I think, is a great, you know, is a great piece of work that's been undertaken. Uh, I want to continue to encourage you to undertake that effort, however you decide to name it. But I think that it can mm -hmm. have a uh, terrific impact in terms of bringing our allies together to support uh, a clean network around the world. Thank, Thank you, Mr. You. Secretary. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Markey, I'm going to ask Senator Schatz, would you preside so that I can go vote? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, good to see you again, Mr. Secretary. Um, when you were here last, you committed to oversee an interagency process to determine whether the atrocities committed against the Rohingya minority in Burma constitute genocide. Since then, the uh, same military leaders who orchestrated atrocities against the Rohingya have seized power in a violent coup against the elected government and it's estimated that more than 800 people have been killed uh, in this ongoing crackdown. Could you update us on what the status of the genocide determination process is and when you expect to make a decision? Uh, it is ongoing uh, and actively ongoing. Uh, I can't put a, a, a date uh, to it. I need to actually check with uh, uh, my colleagues to see uh, exactly uh, when they uh, expect to uh, complete it, but I can tell you it is very much actively ongoing. At the same time, uh, we're doing other work, including uh, supporting the, uh, the work of this UN investigative um, mechanism to try to collect and preserve uh, evidence uh, that, uh, will, uh, that will be very important as well. But I'll, I'm happy to come back to you with uh, Thank you. No. a better timeline. Again, I think it, it, the more that it can be done on an expedited basis would be the better justice delayed is justice denied for these people. So it would be, I think, very helpful for them to know that the U.S. government is on their side. Um, the, the Burmese military junta continued to attack uh, peaceful citizen protesters uh, and denies its citizens basic human rights and democratic rule. The recent arrests of foreign journalists, including Americans Danny Fenster and Nathan Mong, highlight the urgency of cutting uh, off this brutal regime's financial flows. Can you tell us what steps are being taken by the U.S. government to secure the release of Danny Fenster and Nathan Mong? 
Yeah, we're very, uh, very concerned uh, with uh, uh, with their detentions. Uh, journalists uh, doing their jobs. Uh, Americans. Uh, we uh, we've had uh, actually consular access to uh, Nathan Mong. We have not uh, had that access uh, to Daniel Fenster, which in and of itself is uh, a violation of the Vienna Convention, among uh, among other things. Uh, so we are pressing in um, every way that we can, uh, not only to get the access in the first instance, but to uh, get them released and uh, and get them home. Uh, it's challenging because, of course, our, our, our contacts and ability to engage the military uh, regime are extremely limited, but we're working this through uh, other countries, uh, other partners as well. Yeah, so whether it's journalism being practiced in the United States or in Saudi Arabia uh, or in Burma, I think it's absolutely imperative that the United States government stand up to make sure that their names are known and that they know that they are going to have the United States government mm. on their side. So the more that can be done, I think, the better for every journalist in the world sending that signal. Uh, in March, I call for the United States to take steps to sanction the Myanmar oil and gas uh, enterprise, whose revenues are an estimated $1.5 billion annually and make up one of the largest remaining streams funding the junta. Will the United States take steps to cut off the flow of oil and gas revenues to the military junta? Some companies have suspended payments, but there is still no comprehensive regime in place to ensure these funds don't continue to support the military. Yeah, we're looking at the uh, most effective means we can bring to bear to deny support uh, to the regime. Uh, that includes, by the way, um, uh, engaging other countries that have investments and enterprises that support uh, the regime to uh, consider um, uh, ending those uh, investments and that support. But we will look at anything that can meaningfully do that. Uh, we also have to factor in the impact that uh, any step would take uh, on the, uh, the people of uh, Burma to make sure that uh, we're not doing harm to them in the process. Yeah, please. And, and, and I think it is important for us not to do harm, but I've had extensive conversations with the Burmese activists, members of the National Unity Government, and NGOs who argue strongly that we can cut mm -hmm. off this funding to the military without major negative impacts to the people of Burma who are already suffering so much. And I just urge you to use all the tools you have to cut off that funding and oil revenues, unfortunately, in too many countries in the world is the stream that mm -hmm. goes to uh, the plutocrats, the autocrats that run these countries. And the more that we deal with the oil and gas issue in all these countries, I think the better off we are. Um, and I want to applaud you for uh, prioritizing uh, LGBTQI rights in the first 100 days. Uh, where, as we celebrate Pride Month, uh, all around the world, the Pride flag hangs across U.S. embassies, sending a message of tolerance and love. Uh, back here in January, uh, you said that you were going to uh, swiftly appoint an LGBTQI envoy. Could you give us the update on what the status of that process um, is? Best update is to say stay tuned. We're, we're, we're actively working on that. We've got to, uh, as you know, run through uh, a lot of traps when it comes to making uh, vetting, et cetera. But we are actively uh, working on that, and I hope to have a name for you uh, in the near future. Okay. And, and, uh, and if I may, in terms of... Uh, international law, uh, it is legal for asylum seekers to present themselves at the United States border for processing. Uh, 
could you clarify what the administration's position is on that? Because the number of refugees and asylum seekers who need help is larger than ever, and it will probably increase. So what is that message to those who are seeking asylum in our country in terms of presenting themselves at our border? Uh, you're correct, but I don't want to get out of my uh, uh, get out of my lane and want to make sure I'm deferring to my, my colleagues who are responsible for these issues, starting with uh, uh, the Department of Homeland Security uh, and the Secretary there. But as a, as a basic proposition, uh, and our entire um, practice and history up until recently uh, had been that, yes, people have uh, the right to present themselves for uh, asylum uh, and to have that uh, request uh, considered uh, and, uh, and acted on. I think one of the very significant challenges that we faced over the years is that uh, we've not had the resources in place to deal with that effectively and, uh, and efficiently. Uh, and um, as a result, people presenting themselves for asylum would not have their, uh, their case uh, evaluated uh, and adjudicated uh, in a short period of time, and that led to uh, a series of other problems and concerns. So one of the things I think that will, would need to be done uh, in order to make good on the long tradition of having people present themselves for asylum is to make sure that there are actually resources in place to do that. For example, um, uh, judges or, uh, or, or, or others who are able to quickly assess and evaluate whether there's a, uh, a legitimate claim, because if there's not, people need to return now, as a practical matter right now, the border is not, uh, is not open. We also have Title 42 uh, that's in effect as a result of, uh, of COVID. But in the future, um, we need to uh, reform the, uh, the system for, uh, for asylum. Yeah, we don't want to change our policy on asylum. We want to make sure the funding is there yeah. so that those who do present themselves are, are given the protections of American law. But uh, can't thank you enough, Mr. Secretary, for the great job you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Senator. Senator Young. Uh, welcome. Good to see you, Secretary. Mr. Secretary, where a department uh, decides to allocate its resources suggests what its priorities are. And we see this clearly in the State Department's allocation of foreign military financing. The department requests $6.1 billion in FMF for the upcoming year, of which a mere $129 million is allocated for partners in East Asia and the Pacific at a time of increasing Chinese military aggressions uh, across the region. The China legislation that this chamber is currently considering on the floor of the U.S. Senate, uh, and I hope passes today, includes a, a provision from this committee, which would more than double the availability of, of FMF to the Indo-Pacific over the next five years, more than $650 million in total. What would be your priorities for directing these funds, uh, the $650 million? And then relatedly, more broadly, uh, maybe you could speak to the State Department's uh, priorities for increasing con conventional military assistance, that is uh, foreign military funding, uh, as well as training. Uh, thank you very much. And l let me just say, uh, we welcome uh, working with you uh, on that going forward to make sure that we are directing and dedicating our, our, our resources uh, in the most important places and, and as effectively as possible. I think, uh, you know, we have to look at this in a, in a couple of ways. One, uh, in, in some instances, particularly in the Asia Pacific, we benefit from already extremely uh, capable uh, allies and partners, including allies and partners that have um, the means uh, to uh, further 
make the necessary investments uh, in their defense and in, in our, our collective security. So that's an important factor. And of course, um, as you know, with both um, uh, Japan and Korea, we've been very, uh, working very hard uh, to um, extend uh, the host nation support uh, agreements that we have, as well as uh, uh, make available uh, technology uh, to them and to other partners. Similarly, we've, we have a long track record of doing that uh, with, uh, with Australia. Um, but uh, having said that, I'd actually welcome an opportunity to uh, think with you uh, about how we can most effectively direct uh, that, uh, that kind of uh, assistance and support. I appreciate that. I'll, I'll uh, follow up with, with you and your team in that regard. Earlier this year, uh, Mr. Secretary, the previous commander of uh, uh, Indo-PACOM, the U.S. Indo-Pacific Command, called for uh, consistent arms sales to Taiwan and for the United States to help to encourage Taiwan on their investments, including investments which are critical to deterring China. What capabilities, Mr. Secretary, are the most important for Taiwan to possess? Uh, I think there are a few things. Um, first, and to your, to your point, I think we've had about uh, $18 billion in uh, foreign military sales since 2017. So there's a, a, a strong foundation, and indeed, uh, a number of uh, sales have gone forward just in the last, uh, in the last weeks uh, and months. Um, one of the things I think we should focus on is helping uh, Taiwan strengthen its asymmetric uh, capabilities like uh, reserve force uh, reform. Uh, there is um, uh, you know, some focus that countries often have on these large weapon systems. That can be uh, important uh, in, in defense. But uh, the strategies, uh, the uh, asymmetric capabilities, uh, these are, I think, uh, increasingly important. How can we build and support a robust foreign military uh, financing agreement with Taiwan so that we might give them greater flexibility in increasing their conventional capabilities? You know, I'd, I'd certainly be interested in, in, in hearing where there are um, problems, constraints, uh, challenges, and looking to see if there is uh, uh, more uh, we can do and uh, more effectively consistent uh, with the, uh, the Taiwan Relations Act and uh, our commitment to make sure that Taiwan has the means to, to defend itself. I think we're going to have to make some uh, difficult decisions there uh, moving forward. Uh, I'll look forward to working with you. Um, related to difficult decisions and, and, and problem sets, let's pivot to Iran. <laughs> um, I continue to be, I know so many of my colleagues are, are, are deeply concerned uh, by the administration's, um, it seems, hurry uh, to, to reach a nuclear agreement with Iran, even as the regime provides material support to groups that just spent two weeks uh, raining rockets into our ally Israel. Um, I hope you can appreciate the, the, uh, the tension um, that some see or, or feel there. Why does the department believe that relaxing sanctions and providing more resources for Iran to fund their proxy network would improve the security of the region? Um, Senator, I think what would uh, improve the security uh, of the region um, would be to start with making sure that Iran cannot continue to gallop forward with its nuclear program, which unfortunately 
it's doing uh, since uh, we pulled out of the agreement and it decided as a result not to abide by the constraints. And as we were discussing a little bit earlier with our, uh, our colleagues, what we've seen Iran do under maximum pressure uh, is to significantly increase uh, its capacity when it comes to uh, its stockpile of enriched uh, uranium, uh, more than tenfold what it had uh, during, the, uh, during the agreement, uh, when it comes to uh, spending more advanced uh, centrifuges, uh, enriching to 20%, in some small cases to 60%. Uh, all of this means that Iran is now moving inexorably to a place where the breakout time for it to produce fissile material for a weapon uh, will move from a year or more under the agreement uh, to now probably a few months, uh, and if this keeps going, uh, to a matter of weeks. And as we were discussing earlier, uh, that means that Iran is going to act uh, with even greater impunity in all these other areas where we uh, all agree uh, we need to, um, uh, to stop what, uh, what it's doing. Uh, beyond that, I'd say that, um, uh, unfortunately, uh, Iran's uh, support for, uh, for terrorism, uh, for groups like Hamas, uh, destabilizing actions in the region, that was happening before the JCPOA. <laughs> it was happening during the JCPOA. It's accelerated since uh, we uh, pulled out of the JCPOA and Iran has lifted not only constraints uh, on the nuclear side, but apparently constraints on its actions in other areas. I'll just end with uh, a couple of sentences with the chairman's indulgence here because my time is uh, I'm over my allotted time. Um, I'll just indicate it, it remains unclear to me how the administration intends to reach a, a longer and stronger nuclear deal. If you spoke to that today, uh, I'm, I'm unclear how you get there. Uh, I know the president campaigned on that, but uh, unclear how, how we get there. And I would also indicate that if any deal is struck between uh, the administration and our negotiators and uh, the Iranians, that that needs, uh, Senator Johnson has indicated, that needs to be submitted to this body as a treaty uh, so that we can give sanction to it and so that it might be more enduring uh, as we look into the future. Thank you. Thanks, Senator. Thank you. Uh, Senator uh, Merkley. Uh, thank you very much, Mr. Chair, and, and thank you, Mr. Secretary. The previous administration in the State Department, <coughs> Secretary Pompeo, found that China was engaged in genocide in its treatment of the Uyghur community. And under your leadership, I believe the State Department has reaffirmed that China is engaged in genocide. That's correct. So right now we have a bill on the floor, the competition bill with, with China. And uh, so lots of Chinese issues are getting attention, in, including uh, this. The sanctions that are in Senator Rubio's and mine, Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, are in the underlying bill. And also attention to the fact that uh, China uh, is hosting the 2022 Olympic Games while engaged in genocide. The underlying bill has Senator Romney's amendment from committee. I think it had substantial bipartisan support, uh, a sense of Congress that there should be, that diplomats should not attend. Uh, and so I just wanted to ask you today, do you support uh, diplomats from the United States not attending the 2022 Olympics while China is engaged in genocide? Uh, Senator, what we're doing is uh, right now is consulting uh, closely with, uh, with allies and partners uh, to uh, define the common concerns that we have uh, about, uh, about China and uh, ideally to establish a shared approach, which I think 
uh, would be much more effective than everyone going off in their own direction. So we're in the, in, in the process of those consultations, and I'd be happy to share more uh, as we move forward. Thank you. As you engage in those shared approaches, I just want to remind you, as I don't need to do because I know you know this, uh, that this has echoes of 1936, when Hitler and the Nazi regime hosted the Olympics in Germany while they were already engaged in egregious, brutal treatment of Jewish Germans and other political opponents within Germany. And that was considered a massive propaganda victory for mm -hmm. Hitler uh, and distracted attention from that brutal treatment. And that's the point about a diplomatic boycott. And I think even if our allies don't end up in green, I think the US should take that stand mm -hmm. And I think uh, the majority of the members of this committee, maybe it was universal in adopting Senator Romney's amendment. Uh, so um, I just want to encourage you to ponder that frame in this conversation with, with our allies. And I think it's an important frame also for our stand on human rights more broadly mm -hmm. in advocacy around the planet. On another China topic, uh, they are financing some 200 to 240 coal projects uh, around the world. At the same time that, that we're already uh, in deep trouble, I was struck by the map that came out in the New York Times two weeks ago that showed the last 30 years compared to the previous 30 years. So 1990 through 2020 compared to 1960, 1990 in terms of both the temperature patterns average and the drought patterns. And it was dramatic, dramatic change between those, those, those two periods. We're already approaching one to one and a half degrees centigrade across parts of, of the United States. Uh, so I was concerned when the administration greenlighted uh, the Willow uh, project. That's 160,000 estimated barrels per day producing as early as 2024 on the North Slope for an estimated uh, 30 years. So a massive extraction. I was concerned in part uh, because when you extract that oil, it gets burned somewhere and it has a massive acceleration of the impacts. A big irony is they're having to freeze the permafrost, which I guess we'll have to stop calling permafrost, in order to support the equipment to extract the oil, which will accelerate the melting. But I was also concerned on the diplomatic front that if we engage in this type of extraction, new, new projects, and by the way, the pipelines that are being greenlighted through this, hundreds of miles of pipeline, are considered to, to be essentially the pathway for other projects that will follow the Willow Project. If we do that, how do we have the standing in the world to talk about Canadian tar sands, to talk about Chinese coal plants, and to lead this world in the biggest challenge humanity has faced, which is a fast pivot off fossil fuels. Uh, Senator, I very much agree with the general proposition that um, uh, leading by the uh, power of our example uh, is, uh, is important. And when it comes to uh, climate, uh, I can't uh, comment on uh, domestic internal uh, issues. It's not my, uh, not my brief, but let me say this. I think that uh, we have made very significant um, commitments uh, when it comes to, uh, uh, to curbing emissions uh, going forward. And that, in turn, uh, has helped us um, leverage uh, much more meaningful commitments from, from other countries, which are absolutely essential if we're going to, uh, to solve this problem. As you know better than I do, we're 15% of global emissions, even if we do everything right at home. 
uh, we have to bring the other 85% uh, along. Uh, plus, we should not be the only ones uh, tackling this, uh, this problem. So uh, what, what I've seen, at least internationally so far, this is all I can attest to, is that um, uh, rejoining Paris, um, the summit convened by President Biden uh, of, uh, of world leaders just uh, a couple of months ago, uh, and the um, uh, raised ambitions of our own um, uh, efforts uh, have had a meaningful impact in bringing others uh, to raise their ambitions and to do more. Um, and that's at least what I'm seeing so far. Well, I do think it's been a lot of actions with the administration that have been very helpful in that regard. But I also feel this decision and the Nord Stream 2 decision, uh, both involving more fossil fuel infrastructure, more extraction, uh, slow down the pivot that is essential. And I don't think the, the humanity addresses this challenge without really fierce, determined American leadership. Uh, and my final question, uh, I condemn Hamas's use of, of the, the rockets uh, against Israel. But I am also concerned about Israel undermining the possibility for, for peace by continuously establishing new settlements, expanding those settlements, and establishing roadways that split the West Bank into uh, a number of smaller units that make a potential economy in a two-state solution extremely uh, difficult. Is this a concern that you share, and did you raise this concern in your meeting with Benny Gantz last week? Uh, yes and yes. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Barrasso. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, Mr. Secretary, welcome back. I'd like to follow up on some things that uh, I asked of you during the confirmation process. And the first is Nord Stream 2, the pipeline. Uh, there is strong bipartisan opposition on this committee and throughout the entire Senate to President Biden's deliberate failure to sanction all of the entities that are involved in the construction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Protecting this Russian trap is not in the U.S. national security interest. It is a grave mistake. Uh, the pipeline threatens the energy security of our friends as well as our allies. We know that Russia uses energy as a geopolitical weapon to coerce, to manipulate. Uh, I know you've agreed to that during our confirmation hearing. And it does seem that President Biden is now allowing the Nord Stream 2 pipeline to be added to Russia's energy arsenal. So Putin has said essentially the same thing on Friday. He stated that Ukraine must now show goodwill if it wants Russian gas transiting uh, through the country to continue. He said that Russia is going to further threaten to cut gas to Ukraine. They've done that over the, the Donbass conflict. Uh, this is even before Nord Stream 2 has been completed. So I think it's really critical that we act now. Uh, I think we have a misguided policy right now coming from, the, coming from your boss, the president. I think it's in our national security to impose sanctions on Nord Stream 2 now. Why is it not in our national security to impose those sanctions? Mm -hmm. Um, if uh, the sanctions uh, could, in our, in our judgment, have been effective in actually stopping the physical completion of the pipeline, uh, that would have been uh, one thing. Uh, in our judgment, they would not have had uh, that effect. We did, uh, as you know, on May 19th, uh, sanction more entities than have ever been sanctioned uh, under the, uh, the PISA legislation. Um, but, uh, as you know as well, the pipeline construction began in 2018. By the time we took office, it was more than 90% uh, complete. And as we looked at this, um, it, was it became clear to us that the actual joining of those, those last pipes was not going to be stopped uh, by sanctioning um, the, uh, 
the overall entity, Nord Stream 2 uh, AG, or, or the CEO. Having said that, two things are very important. One, uh, the waiver that we issued can be rescinded uh, at, uh, at any time. Second, um, what has to happen, there are two things that have, that, that have to happen, and they are, uh, I think, happening. Germany uh, is uh, coming to the table uh, to talk about steps that would need to be taken if um, anything starts to flow through this pipeline to make sure that any uh, damage done uh, to Ukraine, in fact, is not done, uh, is undone. And that, uh, as we discussed a little bit earlier, involves several things. Uh, it involves making sure that uh, Ukraine uh, is whole when it comes to any transit fees that it might uh, lose as a result of the pipeline actually going into operation. Uh, second, ensuring that uh, gas or oil, for that matter, can't be used as a weapon of coercion, a blackmail, uh, by Russia, and there are means uh, to do that. Uh, third, uh, to make sure that uh, countries are acting up front uh, when Russia uh, acts out uh, to, uh, to respond. Uh, I'd also point out that uh, when it comes to the operation of the pipeline, um, there are uh, very significant re uh, remaining factors that have to be uh, taken into account. Uh, insurance, uh, permitting, uh, we're looking very hard uh, at, uh, at those entities as well. So we need to see uh, going forward what we can put in place to uh, prevent, uh, mitigate, undo any damage that would be done if the pipeline actually begins operations. But as a very practical matter, when it come to, came to the last few meters of this, uh, of this pipeline, uh, it was our judgment that uh, sanctioning the, um, that entity would not have uh, had any, any effect. And the worst of all worlds would be a combination of pipeline physically uh, completed, uh, relationship with, uh, with Germany uh, poisoned, and uh, no incentive for Germany to actually come to the table to engage in trying to uh, mitigate the damage that could be done by the pipeline have, uh, actually operating. Yeah, I would just point out, Mr. Secretary, that during your confirmation process, because you just talked about the last few meters, mm -hmm. uh, you reiterated your opposition to the Nord Stream 2, and you said, quote, I am determined to do whatever we can to prevent that completion the last hundred yards. So the fact that it was 90% complete when you came into office and the administration came into office, your commitment to us was the last hundred yards. Yeah, I want to move on to the World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. um, while President Biden and the administration vowed to reform the World Health Organization, I think it threw away its leverage early on by rejoining the World Health Organization and giving it more than $200 million. The administration could have insisted that reforms be made. The annual World Health Assembly meeting, May 24th, was another opportunity to demand action, yet it just reinforced the systemic problems and the inability of this organization to make real reforms. For example, China succeeded at that meeting in blocking Taiwan's participation at the World Health Assembly. Taiwan only wanted to be an observer, and arguably Taiwan has one of the world's best records in combating COVID-19. Uh, in May, you stated there is no reasonable justification for Taiwan's continued exclusion. For, we agree from the forum. In addition, the World Health Assembly voted to place Syria and Belarus in leadership positions at the World Health Organization. Uh, you claim the best way to reform the World Health Organization is from within. No reforms are being made. How will we be able to make any meaningful reforms at the World Health Organization if we can't even prevent dictators like Assad and who slaughters people for his own people from having a leadership role in what is the World Health Organization? Yeah. Uh, we've only just uh, gotten re-engaged with the uh, World Health Organization. Unfortunately, this is not like flipping a switch. Uh, there is your right uh, work to be done, uh, work that we are doing. 
uh, to push uh, that, uh, that body, that institution, uh, to make the necessary reforms. Uh, and we are very, uh, very intent on that. Uh, I think you saw with uh, the uh, initial phase one report that was done uh, uh, on the uh, COVID origins, uh, the uh, uh, initial impulse uh, might have been uh, to uh, say, uh, work done, uh, job complete. Uh, but uh, a number of us made very clear uh, the absolute, not only inadequacy of that uh, report, but the fact that its methodology uh, and uh, the engagement by, uh, by China in writing the report uh, was totally um, uh, insufficient and undermined its credibility. And now the, uh, the head of the World Health Organization has uh, basically agreed with that. And they're pursuing the phase, uh, phase two, which is vitally important to try to get to the bottom of what happened. Let me just conclude. May 12th, we had a committee hearing, bipartisan committee, titled COVID-19 Pandemic and International Response. Uh, Gail Smith, who is the State Department Coordinator for Global COVID Response and Health Security, was here. Um, I specifically urged her to use the World Health Assembly annual meeting to push for reforms and get them implemented. It certainly did not uh, occur, and uh, I think it's fair to say that the actions were unsuccessful. We, we are working on pushing the organization to reform. As I said, it's not like flipping a switch, but we are very much uh, focused on doing that. And we'll, we'll uh, come back to you as this moves along uh, to uh, uh, see if we, uh, we succeed in moving in the right direction. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank, Thank you, Senator. Senator Schatz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, uh, Secretary, uh, for being here. I want to talk to you about climate. I know what you're doing in the big picture. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I want to talk to you about climate within the department, uh, with the foreign service officers um, and throughout. Um, I worry a bit that climate policy uh, swings back and forth depending on who's president. And um, to the extent that it's possible, I think it's really important for the Department of State in particular to kind of embed in its work, in its training, in its day-to-day -day operations, in your bilateral con conversations, not just at the secretary level, but at the sort of line level, um, uh, conversations about collaboration on climate action, which is to say transitioning to a clean energy economy, but also climate mitigation strategies, which in the short run, I think are our best platform for sort of bilateral goodwill building, particularly in Oceania and other places that are immediately facing those impacts. So can you talk to me a little bit about what the department itself is doing, not at the sort of foreign policy level, but at the line level? Yeah, sure, a few things. Um, first, we do have, uh, we have two things at the department uh, right now. Of course, we have the work that uh, the former Secretary Kerry is doing uh, as our special envoy on uh, climate diplomacy uh, around the world. But we also have, critically, um, a very important bureau that I hope will, will uh, the uh, Bureau of uh, Oceans and the Environment that will hopefully soon get um, confirmed by the Senate uh, new leadership that's going to be uh, very important. But in our budget request, um, uh, both in terms of the, uh, the resources and in terms of the human resources, uh, we know that we need to build up uh, our capacity, uh, our expertise uh, in a number of areas, and climate uh, is one of those. And the request uh, reflects uh, the, uh, the desire to do that. And so I'm hopeful that we get some of these resources to bring in uh, more expertise uh, to, uh, to sharpen our training, uh, to bring to bear uh, technology so that we can advance uh, the climate mission more effectively. 
You're looking at some changes in the curriculum for foreign service yes. officers? Okay, good. Uh, let me talk to you about Oceania. I really appreciate the fact that, that uh, you gave a message to the Pacific Island Conference mm. of Leaders uh, last week, and I know how meaningful uh, it is uh, to have the Secretary of, Secretary of State talk directly with leaders from <coughs> Oceania and commit U.S. leadership to confront the climate crisis and, and uh, support uh, vaccine deployment. Uh, I introduced a, a bipartisan bill with Senator Murkowski to elevate all of Oceania in, um, in uh, U.S. foreign policy, and uh, the chairman and ranking member included a number of these provisions in the bill that we're hopefully adopting today on the Senate floor. Can you just talk to me about why it's important that the United States step up its engagement with all of Oceania and make it a central part of our Indo-Pacific strategy? Well, I think, uh, among other things, it's one area where uh, we see China very, uh, very actively engaged. Uh, and um, on a whole um, uh, variety of levels, uh, whether it is um, uh, whether it's uh, strategic, uh, whether it's uh, uh, economic, whether it's environmental, um, we uh, want to make sure that we, in fact, are, uh, are effectively uh, engaged and not uh, certainly not ceding uh, the terrain. We also have, uh, as you know very well, in a number um, of um, uh, these countries, territories, uh, very significant um, climate challenges that they are going to be on, on the front lines of having uh, to deal with. Uh, and we want to make sure that we can be effective in, uh, in helping them deal with it. Uh, so there are a, a, a host of, uh, of regions, of reasons, excuse me, uh, why uh, I think it makes sense to try to uh, uh, not only uh, sustain but increase uh, our engagement. It's also one of the reasons I wanted to make sure early on that I had an opportunity to, uh, to engage with, uh, with these countries. Thank you. I want to talk a little bit about the South and East China Sea. You know, mm -hmm. everybody knows we're doing uh, um, to, to, to keep uh, sea lanes and shipping lanes open. Everybody understands what, what China is doing, which is sort of using these so-called fishing fleets as, as proxies uh, for, for, the, for the Chinese government. Um, I worry a little bit about uh, their ability to control escalation because they're using these proxies and our uh, right now, we have a, a rather binary choice between doing nothing and mobilizing the United States Navy. Now, if it gets kinetic, we, we win the engagement, but in a, in a lot of ways, we, everybody loses that engagement. And so I, I'm wondering about the use of the present um, in the East uh, and South China Sea uh, without mobilizing the entire United States Navy, which seems to me to be a little bit of a mismatch in, in, mm. in, in raw power. Well, uh a few things. First, uh, with regard to the Navy, it is important to note that uh, over the last uh, years, starting back in uh, 20, uh, 2010, 2011, we shifted uh, our uh, resource deployment so that 60% of the Navy would be in the Asia Pacific. Uh, again, a process that began back in uh, 2010. Um, and that's significant because it is important, uh, obviously, to have uh, the deterrent capacity. It's important to have the capacity to uh, engage in uh, freedom of navigation uh, operations, et cetera. So that's a, a foundational baseline. Um, having said that, I think there are a few things that are uh, also very important. Uh, we've worked very hard um, just in the last few months with, um, with Australia, with France, with Germany, with Indonesia, with Japan, with Malaysia, with the Philippines, uh, the UK, Vietnam, that is concerned countries in the region as well as uh, concerned countries outside of it. Uh, to uh, join in um, uh, speaking forcefully and engaging uh, directly when we see China 
uh, trying to uh, abuse uh, its, um, uh, its actions in uh, whether it's unlawful claims uh, that it's making, the militarization of uh, disputed features, provocations, including with its maritime uh, militia. So we have a growing group of countries coming together that, uh, uh, that are focused on this. Um, uh, in addition, uh, we have made uh, very clear and reasserted our own defense uh, commitments uh, to countries, uh, for example, the Senkakus uh, in Japan. Uh, we have a, an agreement, as you know, with the Philippines. We have reaffirmed and, and reasserted those. Uh, we're certainly looking at other means uh, that um, can help deal with uh, some of the challenges. We talked a little bit earlier uh, as well, my own, uh, my own view, um, and this is not a, an administration position because it's not something that has come up with the president yet, but my own view is that we'd also very much benefit uh, from ratifying the law of the sea. That was my final question, yeah. so thank you. Um, and and um, you, you said that this morning. I appreciate that, that, that you think it would be useful to, to the United States to ratify mm -hmm. the, the Law of the Sea Treaty. Um, and I understand you, you haven't talked to mm -hmm. the President of the United States about this yet. Can you please talk to the United, uh, President of the United States and get back to the committee? No, absolutely. And, and I, I'd say also that when he was chairman of uh, this committee uh, and, uh, and, and or ranking member, that was something that, uh, that he supported. In fact, we, we held hearings. Um, uh, back then, uh, but I think what's particularly significant is that the uh, people who feel strongest about this uh, in our government are um, our colleagues who happen to wear uniforms. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, I sat through several Law of the Sea hearings that I was asked to chair, uh, and I have to be honest with you, uh, unless we get over the ideological problems that some people have about entering into these agreements, it, 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 we spent an enormous amount of time. I think it's incredibly important for a whole host of both security and economic reasons, but we got to get some people to, to start rethinking what it is to engage in some of these treaties. Senator Cruz. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Secretary, welcome. Thank you for being here. Not since the Jimmy Carter administration has an administration had as many serious foreign policy blunders in such a short period of time. The Biden administration came in and the first week in office ended the Remain in Mexico policy, which has prompted the worst illegal immigration crisis in 20 years. In the Middle East, the Biden administration inherited a flowering of peace with the historic Abraham Accords. And the Biden administration came in and began undermining our friend and ally, the state of Israel, sent over $250 million to the Palestinian Authority, which is in bed with Hamas, which announced even this week that they are continuing to fund the families of terrorists who murder innocent civilians, and they're now doing so in effect because money is fungible with U.S. taxpayer dollars. And as a result of those foreign policy blunders, what had been historic peace became war in recent weeks in the Middle East. But I think there's no area in which the foreign policy blunders have been greater than concerning Russia and Nord Stream 2. You are not surprised that I'm making this point to you today. I think it is useful to pause for a moment and reflect on the successes we had as a nation concerning Russia and Nord Stream 2 and just how President Biden has given those away. In the summer and fall of 2019, I introduced in this committee bipartisan sanctions to stop the construction of Nord Stream 2, the natural gas pipeline 
from Russia to Germany. I did so along with Senator Shaheen. It was overwhelmingly bipartisan. Indeed, every Democrat on this committee supported it, and all but one Republican on this committee supported it. At the time, there was considerable Russian disinformation being pushed in Europe. The Russian disinformation said the pipeline is nearly complete. As they said later that year, the pipeline is 90% complete. You cannot stop it. The sanctions cannot work. The Russians pushed that relentlessly, relentlessly, relentlessly. We now know that disinformation was a lie. The Congress passed that bipartisan legislation into law. It was signed into law, if my memory serves me correctly, at a 7, 7 p.m. on a Thursday. At 6.45 p.m., 15 minutes before the President signed those bipartisan sanctions into law, the company building the pipeline announced they were immediately halting construction. So the Russian disinformation was exactly that. It was a lie. And the sanctions worked. From that moment for the next year, the pipeline lay dormant and fallow, and there was no construction. The next year, in December of 2020, I introduced, along with Senator Shaheen, a second wave of bipartisan sanctions that passed into law, ratcheting up the punishment even more. And then, unfortunately, the Biden administration came in and turned this incredible bipartisan victory for America into a colossal failure. It started in November, shortly after the election in 2020, when an individual, Nicholas Burns, who was identified as an advisor to then-President-elect Biden, told a German newspaper that, quote, the Americans must suspend sanctions in return for a temporary halt to Nord Stream 2. Now, that message from the incoming Biden team was heard loud and clear, which is why the Moscow Times quoted the German foreign minister as saying, of course, we are very interested in discussing the Nord Stream 2 topic with the new administration in Washington. That initial sign of weakness was heard, and in late December, the Russians resumed construction. For a year, it had been dormant. Late December, they resumed construction in German waters. But it wasn't yet done. The second wave of sanctions that we passed into law still gave them pause. They threatened to resume construction in deep-sea Danish waters on January 15th. But they didn't dare. They didn't dare because they believed the outgoing Trump administration would impose sanctions. And they recommenced construction of the pipeline in Danish waters on January 24th, five days after President Biden was sworn into office. They did so because they were convinced that the Biden administration would not enforce the sanctions. You sat before this committee and promised you would use every tool you have to stop the pipeline. You sat in my office and promised, you and I discussed this at great length in my office, you promised you would use every tool you have to stop the pipeline. You put out a public statement in March that explicitly warned, quote, any entity involved in the Nord Stream 2 pipeline risks U.S. sanctions and should immediately abandon work on the pipeline. But then, unfortunately, the Biden administration decided to waive those sanctions for Nord Stream 2 AG, the umbrella group building the pipeline, and for its CEO. In doing so, 
The Biden administration all but ensured this pipeline will be completed because I assume you have made a decision to embrace Angela Merkel and in doing so, to allow this pipeline to be completed even though it puts billions of dollars in the pockets of Vladimir Putin it weakens Europe, it makes Europe more dependent on Russia for energy, and it hurts American jobs. Why did Joe Biden decide to waive the bipartisan sanctions and give what is, in effect, a multi-billion dollar gift to Vladimir Putin? Uh, Senator, it won't surprise you uh, to know that I disagree with your assessment across the board, but uh, just to focus on the, um, uh, the pipeline, uh, I think we're also apparently not working from the same uh, fact set, because uh, under your chronology, miraculously, uh, the uh, construction of the, the pipeline uh, had been uh, not only halted, but um, could not have been very far along, and then somehow, suddenly... Uh, With it, respect, it was 90% complete it was, in 2019 when the sanctions went into effect. So the statement you made earlier that it was 90% complete, there was nothing you can do, that was true a year ago, right. and the sanctions worked. Well, it was, not, it was 90%, more than 90% complete based on the information we had when we came to office. Uh, that was I, true a year ago when the uh, sanctions were passed. And what we saw and what we've seen is uh, the companies uh, finding uh, workarounds, finding alternatives. As one company would drop out, another would, uh, would drop in. Uh, the Russians were able to put, bring to bear. Prior to the Biden team suggesting sanctions wouldn't be imposed. Had they, had they returned to building the we pipeline? Didn't, we didn't suggest that sanctions wouldn't be imposed. I think... Uh, was the first, quote from Nicholas Burns Mr. not accurate? Mr. Burns was not uh, a member of the administration. There was no administration at that point. But beyond that, uh, had the so Germans... So you say it's purely coincidence that it began the, on January 24th? Had the, uh, had the Germans agreed uh, the, to... The secretary will suspend. Yeah. The senator has used all seven of his minutes before he asked his question. I've allowed you two interruptions. We're going to let the secretary finish, and then I need to go to another member who's been waiting for some time. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Um, Senator, had the, uh, the, the idea, for example, of uh, suspension for suspension, that is, uh, the uh, Germans and others suspend all work on the pipeline in turn for uh, suspension of, of sanctions, uh, that would have been, I think, uh, a positive outcome. Uh, and that would have given us time to work to make sure that uh, the, th the pipeline could not be completed. But it was our judgment, based on the facts, uh, that we had available to us, including from the intelligence community, uh, that uh, the uh, construction was going to be completed, the physical construction, uh, regardless of any step uh, that we took uh, in, in, the last, uh, in the last few months. Uh, as you know, uh, we did sanction more entities under PISA in this last round, May 19th, than had ever been sanctioned before. Uh, but we also need to preserve uh, the ability uh, to insist that uh, Germany work uh, with us if the uh, pipeline is actually going to become operational. Distinction between the physical com uh, completion of the pipeline and it becoming operational uh, to um, mitigate, counter, undo the damage that we agree uh, would, be, uh, would be done, potentially to Ukraine, uh, potentially to others. And that's what the Germans are now doing. I think the worst possible outcome uh, from our perspective uh, would be uh, physical completion of the pipeline, uh, sanctions that didn't stop it, uh, poisoned relationship with Germany, and no incentive on Germany's part to actually work to undo uh, or mitigate the damage uh, that will be done to Ukraine. So that's what we're working on now. As I mentioned, uh, perhaps uh, uh, before you came in, 
we do still also have some uh, uh, things that uh, we're looking hard at because as you know very well, since you know this so well, um, there are permitting requirements uh, even with the physical completion of the pipeline before it becomes operational. There are insurance uh, requirements uh, and we're looking very hard at any entities that might be engaged uh, in, uh, in those efforts. Uh, but at the same time, uh, we need to make sure that uh, if this uh, does become operational at some point, uh, that um, Ukraine is protected, others are protected. There are ways that um, uh, we're able to, to do that, making sure that uh, it's made whole on any lost transit fees, uh, making sure that uh, gas cannot be used as a tool of blackmail or coercion, and so having uh, a reserve that can come to its uh, uh, assistance if Russia tried to do that. Uh, other steps to uh, automatically uh, come back at Russia if it uh, misbehaves. So we're putting all of that in place, and I just want to come back to another proposition uh, that is important. Uh, the waiver can be rescinded at any time. Thank you. Uh, Senator Van Hollen is recognized, um, and I'm going to ask him to preside uh, as I go vote. There's also still pending, finally, is Senator Booker and uh, Senator Murphy. And then we'll be finished. Mr. Secretary, it's good to see you again. Thank you. Uh, as I mentioned at this morning's Appropriations uh, Committee hearing, I support the overall contours of the budget uh, that you and the President have submitted. We need a strong Department of State. We need a strong Foreign Service uh, to meet the challenges that we face around the world. And the budget you proposed contains the resources to recruit, train, retain uh, a first-rate, diverse a workforce. I think you'd also agree that one of the key tools in uh, both in recruitment and retention is how we treat our Foreign Service families serving overseas. Uh, four years ago, Senator Sullivan and I founded the Bipartisan Foreign Service uh, Caucus here on the Hill, and based on our conversations with the American Foreign Service Association and others, we introduced legislation called the Foreign Service Families Act. Um, it's a piece of legislation before this committee right now. Uh, and it uh, essentially provides Foreign Service families serving overseas the same kind of sort of amenities and benefits that many military families serving overseas uh, have. Uh, I mentioned this to you in a phone call about 10 days ago. I'm, I'm hoping that um, you can tell the committee today that you've had a chance to review the legislation and that it is supported by the, the Biden administration. Um, I strongly support the, uh, the objectives and the goals of this and, and, and want to come back and talk to you about it. I, uh, mea culpa, uh, since we spoke, uh, I have not um, had the opportunity to focus on it uh, directly, although I, I asked my, my team to do so. Uh, but I think with the press of some, some events <laughs> in the last few days, I haven't had a chance to catch up with them. So if it's all right, let me, let me come back to you on that. But certainly, uh, as described, uh, and in terms of the objectives, I couldn't, uh, uh, couldn't agree more. And by the way, um, now that I've had an opportunity uh, to travel um, a little bit on the, on the job, every place I go, I spend time with our embassy and the embassy community, and I share your high regard and determination to support uh, the families of uh, the men and women who are part of our, our foreign service, because uh, as we both know, they're serving too, uh, but they don't get the same... Um, support necessarily that uh, those who are actually direct employees of the government do. I appreciate that, Mr. Secretary. If, you're, if your team could just get back to us sure. as soon as possible, I've talked to the chairman 
about this legislation. I think we would like to move it, but obviously we would like input from uh, the Secretary of State. Um, just to flag another uh, topic, today uh, Senator Toomey and I sent a letter to Secretary uh, Yellen uh, applauding the administration for the sanctions it placed on 24 uh, officials um, in China who had been complicit in the crackdown on Hong Kong, uh, actions taken under the Hong Kong Accountability Act. Uh, we noted in that letter, though, that the law, which passed unanimously uh, last year, uh, requires that sanctions also be placed on any banks that mm -hmm. facilitate those individuals. Mm -hmm. And we've asked um, uh, the Secretary of Treasury to report to us. Obviously, these are the kind of decisions mm -hmm. that involve Secretary of State and Secretary of Treasury. Mm -hmm. I want to put that on your radar okay. screen because we are going to be uh, pushing uh, to make sure that we fully implement Good. Uh, that you. law. Uh, let me turn to Afghanistan, uh, something you and I have uh, talked about as well in the past, and I appreciate uh, your support to expedite the visas uh, for Afghan interpreters or Afghan staff. I've worked most closely with U.S. forces and may there, therefore be targeted um, for assassination. Um, that, of course, underscores uh, the fragility of the situation as the United States withdraws uh, its forces and the risks. Uh, we all recognize that a negotiated political solution is the only way forward in Afghanistan. We've got to bring all the parties together, including the Taliban. And I commend Ambassador Khalilzad for the good work uh, he's done. Um, my view is we need to strengthen his hand. We need to show all the parties involved that there is a real peace dividend mm -hmm. if they go mm -hmm. uh, in that direction. Um, and so we've proposed, again, bipartisan legislation um, to create reconstruction opportunity zones. These are zones within Afghanistan and certain parts of Pakistan, the parts of Pakistan that were really controlled by the Pakistani Taliban years ago, uh, that would allow the duty-free export uh, from those regions to the United States for certain kinds of goods. Mm. It gives the president a lot of flexibility to shape the legislation. Uh, and uh, when I asked Ambassador Khalilzad about it, he said he thought this was a very, very worthwhile concept. He wanted to work on the details. Um, I've mentioned this to you. I believe time is of the essence. Uh, I think uh, we all remember uh, what happened when the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan way back in the day. The United States had, of course, supported the Mujahideen. We disengaged. We know the sad end of that story. Uh, my view is we have to remain very engaged, and that means not just supporting the Afghan you know, military but making sure people have the tools to try to you know, build a better future. And this has been a proposal that's actually been supported in, by Democrat and Republican administrations in the past. It passed the House of Representatives overwhelmingly years and years mm -hmm. ago. Um, it floundered in the Senate for a variety of reasons. I think the time is now to get it done. And uh, I don't know if you've had a chance since we spoke to, to take a look at it, but um, we really need the administration to uh, support this idea uh, in the interests of uh, providing stability and uh, more opportunities as, as the United States uh, withdraws its forces. Yeah. You, you know, Senator, I was seized with this idea after we spoke. Uh, and like Ambassador Kalazad, I think uh, conceptually it's a, ver it's a very uh, good idea. And again, I asked uh, my team not only to, to, to look at it themselves, but also 
uh, to talk to um, uh, other uh, colleagues, other agencies uh, that would uh, have equities uh, in this. And so there again, I need to come back to you. But I think um, <laughs> to your point, um, making it clear that there are real uh, upsides, real opportunity uh, to, uh, to peace uh, and to anyone who actually plays into that uh, as opposed to um, doing things that perpetuate war uh, is, is, is fundamental. And I think with regard to Pakistan, uh, for example, they uh, say they're focused on, on so-called geoeconomics, uh, which is good. Um, but uh, I think we need to uh, demonstrate that uh, that can have some real, uh, real meaning. Uh, and uh, they would then factor that into their thinking about the steps they're willing to take uh, to make sure that Afghanistan doesn't uh, descend into civil war. So it's a long way of saying, I, again, I, I really will come back to you on this because I think as, a, uh, as, a, as, a, as an idea, as a concept, it's a, very, it's a very good one. We, of course, have to look at the details. I need to talk to uh, colleagues at the other, in the other departments who, who have equities in this. I appreciate that, Mr. Secretary. I do think time is of the essence mm -hmm. here, given the uh, schedule. And I, this is, in my view, an issue that requires a, a foreign policy, national security lens. Um, that's the whole purpose mm -hmm. of this action. It's a very limited approach, creating ROZs. Uh, so I hope that um, you will take the laboring oar in this effort. Um, uh, th thank you for uh, thank you for your your answer and your service. And uh, with that, let me recognize Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you, Senator Van Hollen. I know this has been a very long day. This is the second committee that Senator Van Hollen and I have had the chance to talk to you uh, in, and I know you're at the end, so I'll be very brief. What are you uh, doing tomorrow? <laughs> uh, we can we can be right here. That we, we we've only covered about you know one fifth of the world. Um, Listen, I wanted to just come back to the Iran nuclear deal for a, a, a moment. I think you answered this question in part um, in response to some comments from the, the chair and the ranking member. But in assessing uh, the efficacy of uh, the maximum pressure campaign, um, I, I think we have to have a reckoning with what we got. Um, the Trump administration put on the table 12 demands um, from what I can tell, none of them were met. Um, the country that I pay the closest attention to, Yemen, saw an increased amount of activity from Iran with respect to their proxy forces there. Um, our forces in Iraq started getting shot at again by Iran, uh, Iran's proxies there. Um, I, I, I guess I sort of come to the conclusion as we're sort of weighing whether to continue forward with the Trump era sanctions or waive or release them in exchange for a new commitment from Iran on its nuclear program, um, I, I think it's important for us to ask what we got for those sanctions. And in fact, isn't there evidence that Iran's behavior in many respects got worse, not better during that time? Um, am, am I wrong about my assessment here? They broke out of the nuclear program. They started shooting at our troops again in Iraq. They, they upped their support for many of their proxies in the region, and they refused to come back to the table. It doesn't seem like we got a lot for the sanctions that were reimposed and the new sanctions that were imposed during the Trump administration, which calls into question what we would get by keeping them in place for another four years. Yeah, I, uh, I share that assessment. I think uh, I think that's uh, that's right, and it's uh, unfortunately borne out by the facts. Um, the second topic, um, and 
I'm surprised Senator Portman didn't bring it up because he normally does. Uh, we were together as part of this delegation in uh, Ukraine. Um, he and I, as you know, spent a lot of time working on standing up the capacity inside the State Department mm -hmm. to combat misinformation. Um, I know you've requested in your budget um, uh, essentially flat funding for the Global Engagement Center. Um, but my read is that there are more potential partners that the Global Engagement mm -hmm. Center could, um, uh, could work with around the world than there is funding. Um, the Global Engagement Center is not really doing sort of direct counter-propaganda work. They're going out and, you know, making sure that independent journalists and truth-tellers and folks who are rooting out propaganda have the support to do so. Um, I know um, we're still looking for someone to head up that mm -hmm. um, uh, capacity at the State Department. What role do you envision GEC playing in our efforts to um, counteract Russian propaganda, but also non-state actor propaganda, Chinese propaganda around the world? Uh, Senator, I think it's got a vital role to play and one that uh, we want to see um, strengthen even further. It's, uh, as, as you know very well, engaged in uh, campaigns to, to educate, to expose, to, to mitigate um, uh, disinformation uh, and misinformation. And it is already as it stands, the uh, really the premier platform for, for information sharing uh, I think there are about uh, 400 uh, partners across 29 or so countries at this point uh, that, uh, that take advantage of it. Um, it's worked uh, very effectively, for example, to expose um, uh, Russian websites uh, that were removed uh, from social media for propagating uh, misinformation, um, disinformation from the uh, uh, PRC as well uh, in third country elections. It exposed that uh, and uh, put, a, put, a, put a light on that. Um, and um, uh, it's done very good, I think, open source mapping of um, uh, some of the uh, PRC's use of uh, uh, surveillance uh, uh, and, uh, and data collection, for example, in Xinjiang. So we're seeing it effective uh, across the board. Um, I think that the request that we've made uh, is, uh, is appropriate and uh, will uh, enable it not only to sustain but to actually um, uh, grow its mission. Having said that, I'd welcome, you know, working with you uh, to make sure that it is properly uh, resourced and um, operating as effectively as possible. And yes, we are working on uh, bringing a new leader to the enterprise. Uh, well, I, I know your personal commitment to this mission. I, I thank you for it. Um, and, and I'd also commend to both the, the committee and to you um, making sure that we have the right integration between the counter-propaganda mission at state through the GEC and the counter-propaganda mission at Department of mm. Defense. Yeah. Um, uh, they, um, I, I, in the prior administration, I don't know that, that they were um, coordinating at the level that they could, something that we can do better on. Um, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you, uh, Mr. Secretary. Thanks, Senator. Uh, thank you, uh, Senator Murphy. Uh, we have now had 18 members of 22, so uh, I think They've had great respect for your attendance, uh, Mr. Secretary, and their interest. I just want to close on one or two comments. Uh, I know that uh, Senator Kane's very good at making the case for the JCPOA. <laughs> and it is true that Iran signed and said that it would never have a nuclear weapon. However, if you allow its ballistic missile program to move forward and it develops a delivery system for that nuclear material, and if you lift sanctions, and yes, they roll back for the moment 
a year, two years, three years, but when they decide, if they decide to cross the threshold that they violated their agreement, the time frame for them to develop the capacity for that nuclear weapon without any limitations on ballistic missiles and with their knowledge already as it relates to enrichment creates a difficult moment in which sanctions will have very little benefit mm. at the end of the day. So I think that to be intellectually honest, we have to recognize that part of it as well. I have two final questions. One is on uh, Turkey. It's amazing to me that what was a NATO ally is a NATO ally, but who we had great aspirations for. There are more journalists and lawyers arrested in, journal in Turkey today mm -hmm. and in jails. Turkey is constantly violating, violating from my perspective, international law when it uh, seeks to uh, threaten Cyprus and its international uh, exclusive economic zone, when it declares an economic zone going to uh, Libya that uh, is not recognized at all but interferes with Greece's uh, exclusive economic zone, when it engages uh, in the aggression against Armenia uh, through Azerbaijan, when it's playing a, a, a nefarious role uh, in Libya. So what are we doing uh, to counter Turkey's uh, under Erdogan? And I say Turkey under Erdogan because it's not about the Turkish people, but it's certainly about its leader. Yeah. Uh, we share those, uh, those concerns, uh, and um, we have uh, engaged Turkey directly uh, on them. And I can say with confidence that when President Biden sees President Erdogan uh, in about a week's time, uh, these will be front uh, and center uh, on the agenda. Um, look, I think our, our differences with, uh, with Turkey, uh, including the ones that you've um, uh, cited just now, uh, are, uh, are no secret. Um, and in many aspects, uh, it is uh, not acting as the, uh, the, NATO, the NATO ally it should be, not, not the least of which with the acquisition of the S-400s uh, from Russia. But beyond that, uh, the actions that have been taken in the eastern Mediterranean uh, were uh, uh, deeply disturbing. I think uh, we've been uh, pleased to see it, uh, it pull back uh, from, uh, from some of these efforts, uh, including removing its ships. Uh, from waters that uh, Cyprus considers uh, to be part of its exclusive economic uh, zone and stopping uh, the drilling uh, action. So that's, uh, that's positive. But uh, we, um, we have uh, serious concerns as well uh, with, uh, with human rights, the treatment of journalists, which uh, you were very right um, uh, to put the, uh, the spotlight on. So the president's going to have an opportunity to uh, uh, engage with President Erdogan directly on all of these issues. Um, I will say that uh, we also, I think, have an interest in uh, trying to keep Turkey uh, anchored uh, to the West and aligned on some other critical issues. Uh, we do have uh, important and, and overlapping interests in, in, in various ways in, uh, uh, in Syria when it comes to counterterrorism, in Afghanistan, uh, dealing with uh, some of Russia and, and Iran's uh, malign influence. Uh, but uh, we also have to confront directly these, these differences that you rightly spotlight. Well, listen, I understand why we want it anchored in the West, but you can't be anchored in the West and drifting uh, in every direction further away on all the core principles that we believe in as a NATO ally uh, and also in all the other elements. Finally, uh, I have to be honest with you. I was disappointed that the administration greenlighted the 907 waiver uh, renewal despite Azerbaijan's attack on Nagorno-Karabakh. Now, 
after they got the 907 waiver, uh, interfering with the actual territorial sovereignty of Armenia uh, in the border issue, uh, not releasing the political prisoners, uh, uh, I mean, not the political prisoners, the actual prisoners mm -hmm. of the conflict mm -hmm. in violation of international law. I mean, I don't think that, I think that they can act with impunity. And I think when we waived it, we gave them that green light. Mm -hmm. Look, we'll have to continue taking a look at this. I was uh, and have been working actively on uh, on this, particularly uh, uh, getting the return uh, of the prisoners, uh, getting engaged in um, uh, an actual uh, process discussion uh, negotiation over uh, an actual resolution, uh, and um, uh, working on those things. And uh, it uh, was my hope that we'd be able to get a little bit of, of traction there, but I think we'll have to continue to, to look at this and, and relook at this in the future. Well, I, I hope you will. With the thanks of the committee for your service and for your tremendous appearance here today, I mean, you've gone through several hours here. Obviously, your, your knowledge, uh, intellect, and, and scope is uh, pretty extraordinary, so we're grateful to have your insights, grateful for your service. This uh, committee's uh, hearing uh, meeting will stay open until the close of business tomorrow. And again, with the thanks to the committee, this hearing is adjourned. Thank you.